eBay Motors is here for the ride. Elbow grease and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Can a brutal rapist and killer ever truly be reformed? In Austria in the 1980s, it seemed for some as if this exact phenomenon had happened. Johann Jack Unterweger, convicted of the senseless murder of an 18-year-old girl amongst many other crimes, had become a prolific writer while serving time in prison. His children's stories, plays, poems, and autobiography touched the hearts of many of Vienna's most renowned literary intellectuals, celebrities, politicians, and even a lot of average citizens. Jack's autobiography described his troubled childhood and he was able to gain a lot of sympathy from many. He didn't want to be a monster. He was turned into one. He now used his poetry to express his dark feelings safely. He was better now. He professed he was a changed man, truly 100% rehabilitated. To many, Jack was living proof that the power of exercising one's demons through the written word, through education, can heal a sick man and turn him from a brutal, sexually motivated killer into an enlightened, and even invaluable member of society. Writers, reformists, and many others advocated for his early release. They wanted him pardoned. They weren't able to get him pardoned, but they were able to get him released much sooner than he should have been, which would have been never. Uh, Jack was released from prison in May of 1990 after serving only the required bare minimum of his life sentence, 15 years. Once free, he enjoyed not only regaining his freedom, but his newfound fame, appearing on TV shows, working as a journalist, and making the rounds amongst the upper class in Vienna. And while he was making many of these appearances, while he was also working as a journalist paid to cover true crime, just a few months after his release, Jack began to kill young women again. And he continued killing into the next year. In 1990 and 1991, Jack killed at least eight women in Austria and the Czech Republic. And while he was killing these women, he was also reporting on their murders, paid to do so, pretending to be an advocate for these victims as well. Jack was a suspect due to his criminal past, but initially there was no evidence to connect him to the murders. No hard evidence. And the public in general thought that there was just no way that Jack could be behind the killings. Almost, but not all of the victims were sex workers. The killer transported them to the 
from the cities of Vienna and Graz to wooded areas where they were typically strangled with their own pantyhose, uh, bras later in California. In most cases, the killer left them naked except for their jewelry. With each new victim that was found, the MO remained essentially the same. In June of 1991, Jack traveled to Los Angeles, California on a journalism assignment. While he was there, he kept killing sex workers and kept covering the crimes as a journalist. Now detectives on two continents are trying to find the same killer, a killer who should have still been behind bars, a killer who was anything but rehabilitated. He had changed in prison, but not in any good ways. He'd gotten more sadistic. He was just better at hiding his rage now. He was more sophisticated with his brutality, more skilled in his manipulation, and hungrier than ever when it came to feeding his worst impulses and desires. Today, we'll discuss the early life and crimes of the darkly charming Jack Unterweger, his many later victims, how investigators from two continents worked together to finally stop him on another true crime. I've been wanting to learn more about this evil sack of shit for years, and now it's finally happening edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. (laughs) You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sacks. Welcome to the Cult of the Curious. Uh, So excited to hit a million episodes today. One million straight weeks of Time Suck. Roughly, if you round it way up. Um, Dan Cummins, Master Sucker, Mush Mouth, Profanity Promoter, God's Letter Carrier. And you are listening to Time Suck. Hail Nimrod, hail Lucifina. Don't pee in the houseboat jangles while you're scrolling social media trying to find and report Russian closet communist bots. And glory be to Triple M. Uh, quick reminder that if you're uh, in the Spokane, Washington area this summer around CDA, uh, my only summer tour dates are two nights in Spokane at the Spokane Comedy Club, August 4th and 5th. Uh, where I will be enthusiastically selling some uh, new favorite ideas. TheAncomers.tv for ticks. Uh, you can go to BadMagicMerch.com this month uh, for our pride collection. Swim trunks, water bottles, giant pride flags, t-shirts, like the one I'm wearing. We celebrate the shared experience of learning for all walks of meat sack. Almost all. Not fucking serial killers and pedophiles. You guys can go fuck yourselves. A- and gals. But most, most walks of meat sacks. Uh, we appreciate our LGBTQIA plus friends and allies and the contributions you continue to make to the world that we all live in. Team Meat Sack, motherfuckers. Uh, and again, if you want to share your pictures on socials, once you get your merch, tag Bad Magic Pride so Logan can find you. And then one last thing uh, before I tell the story. Recording this right after getting back from a scout trip to the woods of Northeast Pennsylvania uh, for this year's Wet Hot Bad Magic Summer Camp, September 21st uh, to the 24th. Wow. Uh, the land this year's camp on is incredible. 14 tennis courts, an archery area, ropes course, zip line, outdoor soccer fields, indoor soccer fields, gym, uh, big like workout gym, yoga studio, just so much shit. Private spring-fed lake with like jet skis and a beach from swimming, uh, fishing dock where I did catch two bass in about 30 minutes. Hmm? Uh, massive food hall lodge with uh, incredible meals. Those uh, ribs were fire. So were the pancakes. Awesome sound system for live music. We hung out uh, during another, uh, you know, camp going on for some other people and they were losing their minds having so much fun it was a beautiful thing to watch and i'm fucking pumped to build so many memories this september to hang out with like-minded curious folk in real time right real life no instagram feeds no tiktok or facebook highlight bullshit real meat sacks from all different walks of life having fun together laughing and learning while we uh you know uh travel this world together and find out that we're generally more alike than we are different when we spend time with one another so hail Nimrod, uh, tickets available also at badmagicmerch.com. And actually, also, uh, congratulations to my son, Kyler Cummins, graduating high school in a few days as I record this, 
will have graduated by the time you hear us. The, the bigger boy is a man. So uh, very proud dad. He's a, he's a great, great meat sack. And uh, excited uh, for the next chapter of his life. And, you know, trying not to let my allergies get too fired up when I think about it. And now, uh, you know, let's talk about the kind of person I am hoping and assuming will, will not be a camp. Someone who didn't just do something cool in his life, like uh, graduate high school. Someone who was a real piece of shit. Narcissistic, sadistic, and sadly, probably also a brilliant waste of talent. Austrian serial killer, Jack Unterweger. A pretty simple structure for breaking down today's dirt bag of the week. Uh, I'm going to spend about 10 to 15 minutes talking about his family tree, followed by 30 or so minutes going over some notes he wrote in class in grade school to a guy listed as Vinny in sources. Uh, then I'm going to spend about, I don't know, 45 minutes or so going over Jack's top 10 favorite meals, 15 or 20 minutes after that, discussing what bands he would like to listen to and why. And then, you know, we'll wrap up with about, I don't know, four or five minutes of true crime. Or I'll maybe structure today's episode in a way that makes it bearable to listen to instead. Uh, maybe we'll kick shit off today by introducing you to the Vienna Woods Killer, the name given to the serial killer that was targeting sex workers in Vienna and Graz, Austria. Uh, followed by a full timeline of Jack Unterweger's life and crimes. Let's go with that one. Although Jack Unterweger's case made international headlines in the 90s and did get some attention here in the U.S., he is not nearly as well known today here as uh, many other infamous serial killers. After learning the basic details, I was uh, very surprised by that. I was surprised this dirtbag wasn't nearly as uh, you know well-known or almost as well-known as, like, say, uh, Ted Bundy or John Wayne Gacy. But timing is everything, even when it comes to multiple uh, murders. The LA Times wrote in a 2007 article that Jack's story is obscure in the States because it was completely overshadowed by the trial of the officers in the Rodney King beating and the O.J. Simpson trial. Okay, that's fair. Uh, Jack's case did get a lot of attention in many parts of Europe, especially Austria and elsewhere around the world, though. Uh, Huge deal in Austria. Uh, Author John Leake suggested Jack was actually the first global serial killer. At least, uh, you know, that we know of. Serial killers generally stick to areas that they uh, know. Serial killers who travel long distances and those who kill on different continents are much less common. John Leake is the author of Entering Hades, The Double Life of a Serial Killer, a detailed account of Jack's life and crimes and the main source for today's timeline. Uh, Leake is an American translator and writer who spent six years in Vienna. While there, he interviewed all kinds of people involved with the case and read, quote, millions of words in various documents per the New York Times. Most of his research focused not on Jack's crimes in Los Angeles, but on the many more crimes he committed back in his home country. In the spring of 1991, several sex workers were murdered or went missing in Austria. Their bodies discovered in wooded areas around the cities of Vienna and Graz. Graz is Austria's second biggest city after Vienna. While Vienna has almost 3 million people living in its metro area, Graz uh, a little less, with about 300,000. Two cities were separated by almost exactly 200 kilometers or 124 miles. Uh, The murders made headlines, major headlines in both cities for months and months. On May 22nd, 1991, the newspaper Courier published a front page story about Jack's murders titled Prostitute in Vienna Murdered, Three Still Missing. The article read four prostitutes have gone missing without a trace from the Penzing neighborhood of Vienna. On Monday, one of them, Sabine Moitzi, 25 was found strangled in the Scots woods by a hiker. Now there is grave concern for the lives of the three still missing. In the red light district, the fear of death prevails. It was here in the same article that the press began calling the unidentified killer the Vienna Woods Killer. 
John Leake wrote that Unterweger's victims were from the lowest class of street prostitution. Not very attractive. None of them had strong pimps to stake out corners for them uh, near the neon-lit nightclubs. They were pushed off to the fringes of the district to lonely, ill-lit corners. No one was looking after them, which was doubtless why the killer had selected them. Here we go again, right? A human wolf looking to pick off the most marginalized sheep from the herd. Jack will typically kill victims on Sundays, Mondays, or Tuesdays when there's less traffic in these neighborhoods and, uh, you know, when many people are asleep. Jack, for as active as he was, for as many mistakes as he will make with his killings, he was able to show a lot of restraint when it came to indulging in his most sadistic impulses, made a lot of effort to reduce his chances of being apprehended by typically picking the most vulnerable victims and killing uh, you know, them when and where there would be the fewest witnesses around. At least he did that after serving a decade and a half in prison for the first time he was caught killing. The murders he kept committing in 1990 and 1991 were especially terrifying because Vienna was, and actually still is, such a safe city overall. Author Leek wrote, the, uh, wrote that in the 90s, the Vienna homicide section was smaller than you would expect for a city of its size because homicides were so rare. In 1990, there were 50 murders in a city of 1.5 million people. Uh, you know, at that time, 1.5 million. And uh, that was a 30-year high. And that is not the metro area, if anyone cares. Uh, for comparison, there were 983 murders in Los Angeles, which had a population of 3.5 million at that time. So 3.3 murders for every 100,000 people compared to 28 for every 100,000 people when you go from Vienna to Los Angeles. Vienna, infinitely safer than Los Angeles. Austrian detectives trying to apprehend Jack seemed ill-equipped to catch a killer like Unterweger. He would be the first serial killer any of them had ever investigated. While violent crime increased after World War II in the U.S. and in many other places, uh, the same did not happen in Austria. Leake wrote, after the turmoil of the first half of the 20th century, the disillusion of the monarchy in 1918, the Civil War in 1934, the crime and destruction of the Nazi period from 1938 to 1945, and the oppression of the four powers occupation from 1945 to 1955, the Austrians were determined to create political and social harmony. And outside of Unterweger, they had largely, largely done just that. By 1991, when Jack was released, Vienna was one of the cleanest and safest cities in the entire world. Vienna, like I said, still a very place safe, a very safe place to live. Uh, the Economist Intelligence Unit releases an annual ranking of the world's most livable cities. The EIU is a sister organization to The Economist, which is a prestigious weekly British newspaper focusing on current affairs, business, politics, technology, and culture. And in 2022, the EIU ranked 173 cities around the globe based on healthcare, crime rates, political stability, infrastructure, and access to green space. Vienna was ranked number one, followed by Copenhagen and Zurich. Best city to live in in the entire world. Uh, incidentally, uh, no U.S. city cracked the top 25. Highest on the list was Atlanta at number 26. Next up, Washington, D.C. at 29, followed by Honolulu at 30, and Pittsburgh at number 36. I don't know why Pittsburgh uh, surprised me. I haven't spent a ton of time in Pittsburgh. I've actually heard uh, it's uh, a very great city to live in. It shows up in a lot of like, uh, you know, li good livability kind of city indexes. Coeur d'Alene, not on the list. Why not? I mean, sure, Billy Joel never titled a song after us, but we're not exactly a shithole. Come on, EIU. Uh, sex work was and still is legal in Austria and has been regulated by the government there ever since 1986. Uh, interesting that vice is legal in a city ranked in a comprehensive index as the best fucking city on earth for the average resident to live in. Oh, crazy. Maybe sex isn't evil. 
Maybe becoming a more sexually liberal society could actually lead to, I don't know, more happiness and not some Sodom and Gomorrah cesspool of defilement and debauchery. (laughs) What a wild notion. Uh, Also, because I was curious, while drugs are not legal in Austria, Austrian drug policy does emphasize treatment for small time and addicted offenders over incarceration. The prosecution of persons apprehended with small amounts of drugs, like recreational amounts, very rare, often replaced with a probationary period if the offender agrees to take part in therapy. Uh, Addicted offenders, often eligible to undergo treatment instead of incarceration. So good on you, Austria. Nimrod and Lucifina approve. I think you could be even more tolerant to drugs, but, uh, you know, with them. But you seem to be heading in the right direction. You're, you're doing better than we are. Uh, I downloaded some UN stats on drug use patterns broken down globally by country. They have a ton of comprehensive info if you're willing to comb through a, a bunch of spreadsheets. And here's how the US and Austria compared in 2020. Most recent year for the info, when it comes to the annual prevalence of use as a percentage of the population, age 15 to 64. For cocaine, uh, 2.4% of Americans snorted or smoked that shit compared to 2.42% of Austrians, so almost exactly the same. For meth, 5.65% uh, of Americans used meth uh, compared to 2.31% of Austrians. For opioids, 4.56% of Americans, 0.54% of Austrians. Thank you, Purdue Pharma. Uh, when I say that the war on drugs in the US uh, isn't working, I'm not just talking shit. I'm speaking truth based on piles and piles of data from around the world. A punitive model is not more effective than a model of treatment and or tolerance. It is less effective. Yet we continue to slam our collective head into the same wall, expecting a different result, you know, than the thousands of times we slammed our head to that wall before. Uh, Refocusing on vice specific to today's narrative. Pimping was and still is illegal in Austria, but there were pimps when Unterweger found his victims and lots of unregistered sex workers working for them. The police in Austria tolerated illegal sex work for the most part, not an investigative priority at all, as long as it didn't result in violence or public disorder. Thanks to a very different relationship between law enforcement and sex work uh, than what exists than what exists here in the U.S., the homicide rate amongst sex workers was actually no higher than the homicide rate amongst the general population at the time of uh, uh, Unterweger's murders. So in the homicide rate of the nation, as I mentioned, far lower than it is here. It's almost like Austria's way of dealing with common vice crimes is is better than what we are doing. I will say that the way they uh, have dealt with sex offenders and violent criminals fucking sucks. Way too relaxed in that regard, as you'll see here today. Uh, Because of Vienna's relaxed attitude towards sex work, many wondered how the Vienna Woods killer was able to get sex workers to go into the woods with him. The police noted that the killer must have been very skilled in either abduction or charm, getting women to let their guards down because they couldn't find any sex workers who reported that a client tried to take them into the woods. Jack Unterweger was a charming motherfucker. Dude was built out of dark charm. Investigators spent hours talking to sex workers and pimps and looked into into different sex offenders. Uh, Many women submitted tips about their abusive or unfaithful partners. Some of those tips did point towards Jack, but many others pointed elsewhere. And Austrian investigators weren't that close to making an arrest until American authorities helped their investigation. The unknown, the unknown killer, in addition to being uh, the Vienna Woods killer, was also called Jack the Ripper of Vienna before anybody knew that the killer was actually named Jack. Uh, a report published by the Association of Police Inspectors called the killer Jack the Struggler. Apparently a misspelling of Jack the Strangler. Uh, Jack the Struggler sounds more like someone who would like to be a serial killer, uh, but just can't quite pull off murdering anybody. Uh, just a guy who keeps trying and, you know, keeps getting, you know, fought off when victims, you know, struggle back against him. 
Jack the Struggler struck again last night. He hit a young woman jogging in a downtown park in the back of the head and knocked her to the ground. He then tried to drag her into the bushes, but he'd hit her with a plastic wiffle ball bat, and the blow didn't really knock her down so much as she was just startled and stumbled and fell. Then when he grabbed her, she pushed him down and kicked him a few times in the ribs and started crying and begging for her to stop. She then easily ripped the wiffle ball bat from his hands and whacked him about the face, head, and neck over a dozen times before resuming her run. She said when she called police a minute or so later that Jack the Struggler was literally sobbing, quote, like a baby. Snot was pouring out of his nose and his cheeks were puffy. It was really pathetic and embarrassing. Police were unable to find the miscreant who seems to have scurried away again and is undoubtedly lurking about in some bushes or an alley now. Authorities do not seem concerned. The suspect is not considered armed and dangerous and police are confident he'll try and attack someone soon who will easily beat him to death. Uh, too bad Jack Unterweger wasn't, uh, you know, more of a Jack the Struggler type, less of a Jack the Ripper. I wouldn't have a story today, but uh, a lot of people would still be alive. Author John Leake wrote, Like the East End of London in the summer of 1888, Vienna's red light district at the end of May 1991 became a place of fear. Because of his criminal past in a nation of, uh, you know, very few murderers, Jack Unterweger was a suspect in the murders, to be clear. But for months, the police didn't have any proof he was involved. And despite his past, many in the media and also in law enforcement and elsewhere, they just couldn't accept that he wasn't actually rehabilitated. And they stubbornly refused to connect a guy who had become a celebrity, a shining example of the power of reform and forgiveness, to the brutal murders. Unterweger was an extremely charismatic serial killer, even at his second trial for murders after serving extensive time in prison for a previous murder and other cases of sexual abuse. He still had more female fans and admirers and would-be lovers, it appears, than Ted Bundy had during his final trial. A lot of people loved Jack, especially women. But Jack certainly didn't love them back, uh, especially the women. He hated women. Curiously, as you'll hear, Jack Unterweger really hated sex workers and seemed to see virtually all women as sex workers, whether they were or not. It was like he categorized all women as either active sex workers or would-be sex workers. And then he charmed them into trusting him enough to allow him to put them in dangerous and compromising positions, and then he betrayed that trust by brutally beating and killing them. Let's dig into the details of the characterizations I'm making now with today's timeline of his extremely gifted, yet also totally broken, dirtbag's life. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time-suck timeline. Johann Jack Unterweger. What if I said like, like that for the entire episode? Unterweger! <laughs> Who are we talking about today? Unterweger! Uh, he was born on August 16th, 1950 in Judenburg, in the state of Styria, Austria. Styria, a state in the southeast, uh portion of the nation it was the second or it is the second largest state in the country the capital is the city of graz uh graz is the second largest city in austria as i said before vienna being the largest january of 2021 population estimated to be around 331,000. when jack was born population was around 226,000. graz has four colleges four universities over 60,000 students attend school there the oldest university is the university of graz and it was founded back in 1585 and former suck subject and energy wizard Nikola Tesla once studied there. Uh, Graz was formerly spelled Graz. Uh, it's, uh, there's no T there, but you still pronounce it with the, with the T, I guess. The name comes from the Slavic word uh, Gradic, which means small castle. Archaeological evidence indicates that Alpine Slavic people once built a small castle in, in what is now the center of Graz. 
The oldest settlement in Graz dates way back to the Copper Age. Uh, between 3200 and 2300 BCE, several millennia later in the 12th century CE, local dukes made the town a commercial center. Uh, the state of Styria was once inhabited by Celtic tribes. In Roman times, it was part of the Roman provinces of Pannonia in the east and Noricum in the west. Styria was conquered by different people during the barbarian invasions, a period of history during the fall of the Roman Empire that lasted from 300 to 800 CE. Slavs settled in the area around 600 CE. In 1918, Styria was divided into North and South. Lower Styria is now part of Slovenia and formerly was part of Yugoslavia. Currently, the population is around 1.2 million. Back in 1951, the year after Jack was born, it was just over 1.1 million. Uh, Judenberg, Jack's birthplace, is a historic town of right around 10,000 people in the upper Styria region. Uh, Judenberg was first mentioned in a document from 1074 CE as a market town within the estates of the Bavarian Eppensteiner noble family. The name means Jews Borough, which refers to Judenberg's origin as a trading outpost populated mainly by Jewish people on the route from the Mur Valley across the Opdach Saddle Mountain Pass to uh, Corinthia. In 1938, Judenberg became part of the Third Reich, and as you can imagine, Hitler and his buddies, uh, they didn't love the name. They planned on renaming the town, but then, you know, allies kicked the fucking shit out of those scumbags. Sadly, though, before that happened, a subcamp of the uh, Mauthausen, Nazi concentration camp was unfortunately built near Judenberg and an untold number of residents died there in the war. Transitioning back into Jack's early life, Jack's parents were uh, Theresia Unterweger and Jack Becker. Theresia was a barmaid and a waitress and maybe also a sex worker. Uh, also, uh, this depiction seems to originate with her son, Jack, and he saw almost every woman as a sex worker, so maybe she was. Uh, Jack Becker was an American soldier. The two uh, met in... Trieste, Italy, a seaport in the northeast uh, part of the country near Slovenia and Croatia. Croatia? I don't know why I added an extra syllable there. Uh, Jack wrote about his father. Of my paternity, I knew only a name. The GI came from Trieste. His home was in New Jersey. Perhaps he gave coveted dollars or silk stockings for it. Perhaps it was a great but doomed love between the soldier and a girl who was too young and without the means to be my mother. John Leake wrote that Theresia Unterweger left home in her late teens. While Theresia was uh, pregnant with Jack, she was jailed for fraud. Released a few weeks before her son was born. Jack was named after his father. Theresia told Jack his father's name and said she met him the autumn before he was born. Theresia was arrested a second time in 1953 when Jack was just two years old and Jack was sent out, of the, uh, out into the country of the primarily rural Austrian state of Corinthia to live with his grandfather, who was uh, a piece of shit, it seems, an abusive alcoholic. Uh, Corinthia is the southernmost state in Austria located in the Eastern Alps. Jack would live with his grandfather for seven years and was, quote, raised among prostitutes in an Austrian village, according to the L.A. Times. But again, that depiction seems to originate with Jack. Maybe being around sex workers was a major part of his upbringing. Maybe not. I do think he had some interactions for sure based on how obsessed with sex workers he becomes. When Jack was three years old, his mother married an American soldier in Salzburg named Donald Van Blarkham. Jack never met his stepdad as he continued to live with his grandfather. But when he saw photos, he noticed that he looked a lot like Van Blarkham which led him to conclude that uh, the man was his father and not Jack Becker. Jack wrote about his childhood uh, in his uh, famous autobiography, my, uh, about his childhood home, excuse me. He wrote, My eyes burned from the smoky air in the low little room. The women prattled, the men played cards. I was the house and court fool, a slave, educated by grandfather to be a fraud's accomplice. I sat on his lap, plain dumb. Later, I moved to my uncle's lap and betrayed his cards to grandpa. 
I was the ace in his sleeve. His fists were my teacher, and I was a good student. Jack's book, he described how he longed for his mother to come back for him, but then his grandfather would tell him that she was, quote, a tramp with no time for you. Super sad if true. Maybe it was true. But also, Jack is such a manipulative motherfucker. Did that shit happen, or did he write it to make people feel sorry for him? Uh, Jack wrote that he traveled to Salzburg to look for his mom. Instead, he found her uh, her sister, his aunt, Anna, who uh, he says was also a sex worker, and Jack wrote that Anna was murdered by her last customer. So was he raised uh, by and around almost nothing but sex workers, or did he push that narrative to get people to think, oh, so that's why he did what he did, because of his upbringing, because of the trauma he experienced while surrounded by sex work. But now he understands, and is better, and it's not going to hurt anybody again. Uh, Jack started drinking schnapps at the age of five, according to an article by The Independent. As he grew up, his behavior became increasingly troubled. He wrote that he was a disturbed child who enjoyed being bad. I do believe that. Uh, Jack did spend much of his youth incarcerated, that's certain. From 1966 to 1974, between the ages of 16 and 24, he was convicted of crimes a full 16 times. Jack started off with minor theft, but then by the age of 16, he was committing crimes such as robbery, car theft, burglary, fraud, and then sex crimes. As written in Leake's book, a series of jail sentences had no corrective effect. Jack would later confess, I wielded my steel rod among the prostitutes and pimps of Hamburg, Munich, and Marseille. I had enemies and conquered them through my inner hatred. Interesting that he mentions a steel rod here. He was a big fan of using uh, steel rods on victims, as we'll learn. In 1967, at only 16 years old, Jack is arrested for violently assaulting a sex worker. The first crime we can find in sources, unfortunately, we uh, don't have details regarding the attack. That's uh, uh, you know, the first, first crime that a specific date is pointed to. Uh, three years later, 1970, when Jack was 19, he's arrested for abducting a 16-year-old girl who he tried to coerce into sex work. From 1973 to 1974, uh, numerous girls in different towns make a variety of complaints against Jack. Meanwhile, when he's not committing crimes against women and uh, also not getting into, into much trouble, apparently, for that, He's working as a waiter, filling station attendant, and a radio disc jockey. While working as a disc jockey, a girl named uh, Daphne in Salzburg reported that on May 13th, 1974, Jack offered her a ride home from the bar. This is one of the first crimes of his that we have like real details for. And before I share those details, we're going to take our mid-show sponsor break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out? Sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. 
Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeZuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeZuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month, when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs caused me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has zero to one gram of net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the two grams of net carbs Hero Croissant or the one gram of net carbs Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. Five grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off the list with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations. Babbel has over 10 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. I've been working on my restaurant skills lately. ¿Cuál es el pescado del día? Excelente. Mi encanto pargo rojo frito. Y me gustaría un poco de huevo de naranja fresco. You may not know what I said, but my waiter in Mexico will, thanks to Babbel. Here's a special limited time deal for listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash timesuck. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash timesuck. Spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash timesuck. Rules and restrictions may apply. Thanks for sticking around. Now back to the show where we pick up with the first of Jack's crimes we have details for when on uh, May 13th, 1974, 
he offered a girl known in sources as Daphne and Salzburg a ride home from the bar. Daphne said Jack was good looking and nicely dressed, drove a Ford Mustang. But then once she was in his car, he didn't take her home as he had promised. Instead, he drove her out past the city limits, left the main road behind, drove across a quiet meadow surrounded by bushes where his car conveniently got stuck in the mud. She got a funny feeling, tried to leave, but when she attempted to run, he knocked her to the ground and then soon raped her. Daphne's victim statement read, uh, as I tried to scream, he hit me on the head with his fists and pushed my face down into the mud. Then he pulled off my shoes and ripped my stockings from my body. He then turned my wrist behind my back and wrapped the stocking around it and then did the same with the other wrist and then tied it off with a large knot in the middle so that my hands were bound behind my back with a few centimeters of playroom between each wrist. Now bound, he picked her up out of the mud, pushed her into the car, raped her with a steel fucking rod, uh, inserted into her vaginally while he masturbated. You know, obviously terrifying. When he was done, he cut her wrist free, asked if she would turn him in, Afraid for her fucking life, of course, you know, Daphne said she wouldn't. Luckily, before he decided that, uh, you know, maybe he's going to kill her anyway. At that moment, another car showed up and a young man got out and asked if Daphne needed help. Daphne ran to him, asked for a ride, which he gave her, and then they went straight to the police. Her attacker was quickly identified as Jack Unterweger. He was arrested and put in jail. In jail, he took a large amount of prescription painkillers. And then his suicide attempt led to him getting placed in a psychiatric clinic in Salzburg. And instead of being severely punished for that shit, he was soon released for reasons never made entirely clear in sources. I don't know if she refused to testify at the time. I don't know what the fuck went on. Easy on drug and vice crimes, uh, Austria. No, cool. But uh, easy on sexually violent crimes is not cool. What is wrong with the world in general in that regard? It just continually disturbs me. Uh, Daphne was very lucky to have gotten away from her sexual assault alive. Even though he was never convicted of any murders prior to his attack or this attack, he very likely had already killed at least one other woman. Just over a year before Jack uh, attacked, you know, just before he attacked uh, Daphne, on April 1st, 1973, a man and his son were fishing on the banks of the Salzach Lake in Salzburg, Austria. The couple, uh, the man saw a couple boys running towards him who told him to look out onto the water. When he did, he saw a dead body floating about 20 feet from the shore. The body was that of a young woman naked from the waist down. A red necktie with checkered stripes had been wrapped around her wrist and her killer had wrapped bandage tape around his head or her head and over her mouth. She had two black eyes, the result of being hit in the face repeatedly. Her legs had been bound together with a pair of pantyhose. Investigators determined that she had been dragged into the lake and then drowned. Her time of death was estimated to have been between midnight and 2 a.m. The night before her body was found, semen was found in her vagina. The next morning, a man named Mato Horvath came to the police station to report his wife, uh, Marika, missing. Marika had gone into the city on the evening of March 31st, then never came home. Uh, Mato showed the police her passport photo. He was then taken to the Institute of Forensic Medicine to identify the woman found in the river. How tragic, man. What an unbelievably terrible soul-crushing day for that guy. He positively identified his missing wife, 25-year-old Marika Horvath. Uh, She was born in Croatia. Met her husband in 1970. They moved to Austria looking for work. She found work as a maid. He got a job as a truck driver. On March 31st, uh, Mato went into the city to watch a movie. When he got home, Marika was gone. Neighbors said she had left at 6 p.m. to take a bus into the city. Uh, She didn't come home. When she still hadn't come home by the next afternoon, you know, Mato's freaking out. After her body was spotted, a fisherman found her purse, which contained her wedding ring. Her shoes were also found along uh, the nearby river. Uh, The wedding ring, I think, is an important note. Jack never takes jewelry from his victims' bodies. This one was unusual in that she was drowned and not strangled, but uh, a lot of times early on 
in their killing sprees, serial killers will experiment before landing on a more consistent MO. Inspector August Skinner worked on this case. He focused on the necktie used to tie Marika's hands together. That tie had a label indicating it had been bought in Vels, a city of around 60,000 located 60 miles east of Salzburg. The tie was manufactured by Maestro Clothing in Vienna, delivered to Moldensteiner, a little shop in Vels on March 8th, 1973. The shop owner reported that the tie was sold later that month, but no one remembered who bought it. However, the shop owner did remember that a young man was looking for a tie to match his suit. A photo of the uh, tie was put up around Vels in Salzburg, but the case went cold. On December 11th, 1974, Jack definitely murders 18-year-old Margaret, Margaret Schaefer, a young German woman. Uh, Jack said at his later trial that when he killed Margaret, he saw his mother reflected in her face. He said he killed Margaret because he felt enraged by the way his mother had abandoned him. Would that make you feel sorry for him? I want to be honest. It wouldn't change shit for me. You know? Oh, cool story, bro. Sorry you hated your mom. Uh, you might want to try and make your peace with your mom real quick because I just scheduled your execution for tomorrow morning at 6 a.m., motherfucker. Mommy issues don't justify murder, shitface. Next case. Uh, let's discuss what led to Jack murdering Margaret now. In January of 1975, he was 24 years old. He had two girlfriends at this time. Uh, you know, girlfriends who knew each other, knew each other, was also a girlfriend. A 16-year-old girl named Maria and an 18-year-old girl named Barbara. The trio had formed a little gang in the fall of 74. According to one of the sources, both girls were uh, so infatuated with Jack that they stayed with him and worked as hookers instead of returning to their middle-class families. So he was pimping out to, uh, you know, teen lovers when he was 24. Super cool dude with a lot of respect for women. Uh, Jack made a plan to steal from Barbara's family home in Germany. But when this plan failed, he said he robbed and murdered Barbara's neighbor and friend Margaret Schaefer instead. Or killed her because she reminded him of mama, like he also said. Or maybe that was just some sympathy plea bullshit. Uh, Jack, Maria, and Barbara all robbed a jewelry store and fled to Switzerland. In Basel, Jack made a plan to ransom Maria, gave her uh, parents wiring instructions. And when he walked into a bank to pick up the wire transfer, he was arrested by Swiss police. When Barbara was arrested along with them, the police linked her to Margaret. And then an interrogator asked her what she and Jack were doing on December 11th, 1974. And this is what she told him. She said that on the night of December 11th, Jack and Barbara drove from Frankfurt to the little village of uh, Ursbach uh, in Germany to get money and other items from her parents' house. The house was locked and her parents were inside, so Jack suggested they go rob somebody else. Just then, Barbara spotted her neighbor, Margaret, who was coming home from going out bowling with some friends. They spoke for a minute. Barbara asked Margaret if she had to go home. When Margaret said no, Barbara asked her if she wanted to hang out with uh, her and her boyfriend, Jack. Margaret said, sure. Now the girls uh, got in the back seat while Jack drove. Jack asked if they wanted to go somewhere for a drink. They parked uh, across the street from a bar. And then when Jack asked Barbara, do you have anything else you want to tell her? Barbara said no. And Jack said, then now we'll get to the point. Apparently, Jack then grabbed Margaret by her shirt, pulled her into the front seat. She asked what he was doing. He told her nothing would happen if she stayed calm. He used a belt from Barbara's coat to tie up her hands, then put her on the floor between the front and back seats. Jack now took 30 marks, the equivalent of only 12 bucks, 12 US dollars from her purse, asked if she had more money at home. Margaret said she had 100 marks more, just uh, 40 bucks US in her dresser. Barbara st- snuck uh, in her house then, took the money, some clothes as well, and then they all drove you know, back away from town. When they later stopped for gas, Jack told Barbara, it's time to make your friend disappear. Margaret cried, asked Jack what he was doing. They now drove for an hour to the little city of Airborne, Germany, where Jack asked Barbara if she knew of a quiet, hidden place in the woods. Barbara directed him to a country restaurant. 
From there, they drove uh, out into a forest road. And when they uh, were far from anybody else, Jack pulled over. He told Margaret to take her clothes off. She begged him to leave her alone. But Jack said he would take whatever he wanted and that she would do whatever he wanted. Margaret asked her friend, Barbara, what is he going to do with me? Margaret refused to take her clothes off. So Jack hit her. Then he and Barbara pulled her clothes off. Margaret asked Barbara why she couldn't help her. She said nothing, just shrugged. She later said she was scared, confused, didn't know what to do. Jack pulled Margaret out of the car and asked Barbara if she wanted to come with him. She said no, stayed in the vehicle. Jack now tied Margaret's hands behind her back, took a steel rod from the center console and led Margaret into the woods. Right, there's that fucking steel rod again. Barbara didn't see him take Margaret's bra with him. Around 15 minutes later, Jack returned with the steel rod, which was now covered in blood and hair. She asked him what he did and Jack said, there's no way she can betray us now. They then threw out the steel rod, Jack's boots, and all the clothing except for Margaret's fur coat. Barbara said in a statement, I was terribly afraid for her, but also for myself. I couldn't form any clear thoughts of what to do. Well, hunters found Margaret's body three weeks later at the foot of a tree, and uh, her bra was knotted around her neck. She was found naked, but interesting, considering Jack's supposed motive in rob- uh, was robbery, she still had jewelry on. Her autopsy found that she was repeatedly struck on the head, neck, and upper body, manually strangled, and then strangled again with her bra. Sources do not mention that she was raped, but I do think this crime was sexually motivated. Right? Did he masturbate again, like with Daphne, perhaps while violating her with that steel rod? Did three weeks in the woods just, you know, erase traces of his semen? In the spring of 1975, in Guster, uh, in, in, in Guster? I just combined August and Inspector. In Guster Skinner. That's a weird term. Uh, Inspector August Skinner learned that the Salzburg DA was planning to prosecute a young man for sexual assault. And that the same man was also suspected of killing a German girl in December of 1974. He was waiting trial to Salzburg jail. Skinner obtained his files and learned that he was, of course, Jack Unterweger. Skinner learned that Jack had been released from the Vells jail in January of 1973. As a reminder, the tie used to bind uh, Marika Horvath's hands purchased in Wells that March. June of 1975, Skinner questioned Jack in a Salzburg jail. Jack said that on the night of March 31st, when uh, Marika Horvath was murdered, he was arrested in Germany when he tried to cross the border there. But then it was discovered that that was not true. He lied. Skinner confronted him with the fact that he was actually arrested on April 4th, right? Caught in a lie. Jack now said, oh, I guess I must have been in Switzerland at that time. So some alibi. Skinner knew that the killer transported Marika by car to the lake. He could find no record of Jack owning a car at that time. And Jack said he traveled by train or hitchhiking, even though he was driving. Uh, Jack couldn't prove that though. He also couldn't prove he was not in Salzburg on the night of the murder. Uh, Skinner could find no conclusive record of him in the city before August of 1973. Skinner thought Jack was the killer, strongly, but didn't have enough evidence to charge him with murder. This is going to happen time and time again with Jack. Skinner continuing pursuing the case for years, uh, would find some incriminating evidence against Jack, you know, more evidence, but uh, not enough again to make an arrest. In July of 1975, Jack uh, now goes to trial for, quote, violent offenses against four girls, though. That's all the sources say. It appears that authors who have written about Jack have uh, had trouble getting details about some of these crimes. Not speaking German or having access to Austrian academic or legal databases. I can't say this for certain, but I'm guessing that the details of certain crimes of his, such as sexual crimes committed against you know minors, uh, have their details sealed or did in the 70s at least. I know that in the uh, Joseph Fritzl case, one of the last times we ventured over into Austria to meet a perverse dirtbag, the Austrian government uh, went to great lengths to keep a lot of the details of what happened to Joseph's victim, uh, you know, mainly his daughter, uh, private. Fritzl, what a sick fuck. Worst dad ever. For whatever Jack did to those four girls, he was convicted and sentenced to three years in prison. 
doesn't sound like nearly enough, you know, whatever it was, four assaults on girls, three years in prison after, you know, a long, lengthy previous criminal record. Then the following year, 1976, he's convicted of Margaret's murder and sentenced to life in prison. Good, but life with the uh, possibility of parole in 15 years, bad. All these crimes against women, right? Including at least one murder in addition to so many other arrests. And this fucker can get out in 15 years. Why? Uh, Jack tried claiming that Margaret was a sex worker during his trial, which was not true. He told uh, that bullshit story about her reminding him of his uh, mom. Get the fuck out of here. He confessed to beating her with a steel rod, strangling her with her bra, said nothing regarding anything sexual, but come on. This was definitely a sexually motivated crime. Jack's time in prison transformed the course of his life. He grew up illiterate, according to the Washington Post and some other sources, but uh, did he? Or did he bamboozle some bleeding heart Washington Post journalist and others into thinking he did? I don't know. In uh, prison, he supposedly learned to read and read and then write, and maybe that's true. Uh, he started writing poetry, short stories, plays, and eventually books. Jack even founded a publishing company and produced a literary magazine in prison. One of Jack's more well-known poems, Love Poem to Death, was written in a letter to Austrian author and journalist uh, Sonia uh, Ausenstein, who met Jack while he was awaiting trial in the Salzburg jail. The poem reads, You come to me again, you don't forget me. Until the end is the agony, and the chain breaks. Still you appear strange and distant, and are alive, death. You stand like a cool star over my distress. But then you will be near and full of flame. Come, lover, I am here. Take me, I am yours. I gotta say, I don't fucking get it. (laughs) Seems like a shitty poem to me. But maybe it's way fucking cooler sounding in German. In English, I'm like, eh, this, this impressed people. Uh, while in prison, Jack attempted suicide at least three times. Too bad he didn't, you know, try a lot harder. He wrote about suicide in poems and letters to his friends. He called it the final freedom and said it would bring him peace. Ah, if only it would have brought him peace so much earlier than it did. 1993, Jack's best-selling autobiography, Purgatory or the Trip to Prison, Report of a Guilty Man, makes him a celebrity in Austria. The book will soon be turned into a documentary film as well. That becomes a big hit. Before he was released, Purgatory even became part of some Austrian school's curriculum. And some of Jack's fictional stories were performed for children on the radio. Uh, Then in 1984, his book Terminus Prison, a collection of poems and stories about his time in prison, wins uh, an Austrian literary prize described as prestigious in numerous sources. People all over Austria and beyond are touched by his writing. Right? They think that he had uh, truly been reformed and by immersing himself into, you know, literature and education, they thought that he should be forgiven. For his terrible crimes. In 1995, a campaign began to have Jack released early. Austrian writers, artists, journalists, and numerous politicians pushed uh, pushed to have Jack fully pardoned and released. Luckily, Austrian president, uh, president Rudolf Kirchschlager refused the petition, citing the court-mandated 15-year minimum term. Some of Jack's more prominent supporters were writer uh, Elfrieda Jelinek, German novelist Gunter Grass, and magazine editor Alfred uh, Coleridge. Coleridge went to prison to hear Jack read his work in person. It was quoted by the New York Times as saying, he was so tender. And at that moment, we decided we had to get him pardoned. Oh boy. Uh, That is a fucking great example of why you have to try and think more with your brain and less with your heart. Somebody appearing tender doesn't mean fuck all. Right, judge them more by their, uh, you know, convictions, criminal convictions, than by how they seem to be in a in a tender moment. Uh, Gunter Grass was a novelist, poet, playwright, illustrator, graphic artist, sculptor, and a recipient of the 1999 Nobel Prize in Literature. Uh, Grass fought in World War II in the Waffen SS, 
the combat branch of the Nazi party's SS. So God knows what that motherfucker did as part of Hitler's war machine. He was part of one of the panzer divisions that saw so much action in the war and often were part of uh, civilian massacres. He was taken as a prisoner of war by the U.S. in May of 1945 and started writing in the 1950s. He died in 2015 at the age of 87. Elfrida Jelinek uh, is a playwright and novelist. She won the 2004 Nobel Prize in Literature, uh, considered one of the most important living playwrights of the German language. She's currently 76. Jelinek uh, wrote about Jack, the clarity and great literary quality with which Jack Unterweger described his childhood made a great impression on me. Historian and radio talk show host uh, Peter Humer told The Independent that he, uh, the autobiography was authentic, a real cry. He signed petitions proclaiming that Jack should be released early. Humor said Unterweger represented the great hope of intellectuals that through the verbalization of problems, you can somehow get to grips with them. We wanted to believe him. We wanted to believe him very badly. I believe that the best way to reform people like Jack Unterweger is with one well-placed bullet. But what do I know? I'm no intellectual, I guess. Uh, while in prison, towards the end of his sentence, Jack was occasionally allowed to attend literary soirees and film festivals, according to The Guardian. That's so fucked up. How insulting to the family of, uh, families of his victims, right? Writing some touching stories does not even the scales for not just a murder, but convictions for numerous assaults on women. Shortly before his, uh, his release in an interview with Salzburg inspector August Skinner, uh, Jack said, you should also know that numerous writers are working for my early release. I have corresponded with the president who wrote to me that I'm not yet mature enough to be released. I've also made amends with the parents of Margaret Schaefer, the girl I murdered in Germany. Thanks to them, I've been able to pursue my education in prison. Several sources indicated that the parents of the woman he murdered paid for Jack to go to school while in prison. He tricked them that deeply. Man, uh, someone did that to one of my kids. There will be fucking zero forgiveness for sure. Like, fuck that in cases like this. I don't think I'll ever understand how some people believe that literally anything can be forgiven. I get wanting to live in harmony and at peace with the entire world around you. It's a nice thought, but the world is not peaceful. You know, not all of it. Never has been, never will be. Peace and goodwill extend to uh, those, you know, maybe extended to those who extend you the same. I don't know. Extended to uh, maybe some people who don't, but also people who haven't done something as heinous as kill and probably rape a child. Extending it to those who have proven to have a certain level of evil in their hearts. Is that noble or foolish? If I was talking to my kids right now, I would tell them it's super foolish. So I guess that's what I believe. I just, uh, I do believe in redemption for many, but man, elimination for others. May 23rd, 1990, Jack was released after serving the minimum term of 15 years. And again, this guy didn't just brutally murder and very likely sexually assault one young woman. He'd been convicted previously of, quote, violent offenses against four girls when he was 16 convicted for violently assaulting a sex worker. When he was 19, convicted of abducting a 16-year-old girl, trying to force her into sex work. When he's 23, sent to a psychiatric facility for abducting and raping Daphne in Salzburg with that steel rod, and almost certainly raped and murdered 25-year-old Marika Horvath as well. It's not like uh, the crime that sent him to prison was an aberration, right? It was part of a long-standing pattern. Criminals like that, they don't change. They don't get rehabilitated. They just don't always get caught when they get back out. Stats-wise, study-wise, they knew that back in 1990. They just didn't want to believe it. They wanted to believe that Jack's redemption story was a beautiful example that could be pointed to as a new idealistic path forward when it comes to criminal rehabilitation, a path where no one is beyond redemption, where everyone can be saved. And that's a sweet thought, but, you know, not true. At the time of Jack's release, one individual, the prison warden, commented, we will never find a prisoner so well-prepared for freedom. 
Man, he was a charming motherfucker. Uh, dude likely uh, regretted the shit out of that quote, making it into the papers a few years later. Uh, Jack enjoyed somewhat of a celebrity lifestyle immediately upon his release. The Independent wrote, For a few months, Unterweger re- reveled in his freedom and celebrity. He became a regular on television chat shows. He read his work to enthusiastic audiences, you know, like paying audiences also, dressed in natty white suits and silk ties. He drove around town in a Ford Mustang, sporting the uh, number plate W Jack 1. What did the W and 1 stand for? I wonder. Maybe like, maybe just Jack 1. Like, I won. Fucking won my freedom. I don't know. Or something creepy. Uh, Jack reportedly had, this is a weird number, 70 girlfriends during the height of his fame, according to news accounts. Uh, That's what was written in the Miami Herald. What a bunch of smart, lucky women, if true. Uh, Jack's supporters believed he was a shining example of a reformed prisoner again. The dude with 70 girlfriends, such a fucking stupid number, by the way. Clearly an exaggeration. Uh, Obviously, a a great guy who uh, respected women. The dude who used to try and pimp out teens and now is apparently fucking any and every woman in sight. No, clearly no longer a danger to women. Uh, Well, Jack, of course, was not a changed man. He was nothing more than a very talented actor. Just a few months after he left prison, Just a few months after 15 years of miraculous rehabilitation, he started to kill again. Jack's case would soon be compared to that of Jack Henry Abbott, a convicted American killer. Like Jack, Abbott became a a writer in prison. Norman Mailer, a famous American novelist, journalist, playwright, filmmaker, and actor who died in 2007 at the age of 84, supported him. When Abbott was released from prison in 1991, he uh, quickly killed again. Despite a fresh murder, Mailer made the observation, culture is worth a little risk. Mm, not that kind of risk. We can find plenty of culture and people who, unlike Jack Henry Abbott, what is up with all the Jack references in this episode, by the way, uh, are not career criminals who stab someone to death over an argument about whether or not a diner's bathroom is just for employees or also for customers a few weeks after being released from prison, which is exactly what Jack Henry Abbott did. On September 15th, 1990, Blanca Bokova is found dead in a wooded area in Prague in the Czech Republic. She was 30 years old, married, and worked in a butcher shop. Lived with her husband and two kids in the city. On September 14th, 1990, Blanca met her friend Martin for a drink in uh, Wenceslaus Square. They got into an argument, and she left just before midnight. Martin walked back over to the square a few minutes later to find her, but couldn't. Blanca was found the next day in Brezny Brook, a tributary of the uh, Vultava River, a couple miles from her apartment. Blanca was found naked except for gray knee-high stockings and her wedding band. Laying on her back in the water, her legs were spread. She was covered by tree branches. She had been strangled manually and then also with a ligature. She'd also been stabbed in one of her buttocks. Her clothing and purse were missing, but her ID was later found on the shoreline of the river. Uh, That ligature was her own nylon stockings. December 31st, 1990, 31-year-old Heidi Marie Hammer found dead near uh, Bregenz, Austria, a little city near the border with Switzerland. Actually, I should think it's uh, Bregenz. This is a tricky one for me. Heidi was a known sex worker in Bregenz. Uh, She was also the victim of several violent attacks early in her career, about a decade earlier, and at the time leading up to her death, but uh, was said to be a a cautious person. Sorry, was a cautious person at the time leading up to her death because of those early attacks. She had gone missing from the corner. She was known to regularly work near the train station in uh, Bregenz around 11 p.m. December 5th. Then her body was found by hikers nearly four weeks later, December 31st, in a wooded area south of Bregenz near the village of Lustenau. The Austrian police determined that Heidi was strangled with her own pantyhose. Her wrists were bruised from restraints. There was no sexual discharge on her body, but fibers inconsistent with her clothing were found on her body. 
Sexual assault, not mentioned, but did Jack jerk off near here, uh, near her? Did he do that with many of the victims like he did with Daphne and Salzburg? Fucking Jerk and Jack. I think so. That should have been his nickname, Jerk and Jack, or maybe Jack the Jerk Off. Uh, at his later trial, an inspector testified that out of four, 54 initial suspects, Jack the Jerk Off, Unterweger, was the only one remaining for the murder of Heidi Hammer. Hairs found on her body were morphologically indistinguishable from Jack's, but none of them had enough hair root to extract DNA. Jack claimed that he was in a hotel in the nearby town of uh, Dornbjörn around 9 p.m., didn't leave until the morning, but then a witness named Johan F. testified that he saw Heidi in her apartment building garage between 11 and 12 with a shorter man wearing a red scarf and a leather jacket who looked a lot like Jack Unterweger. He reached out to the police in February of 1992 when he saw a picture of Jack in the news. And a second witness claimed he saw a white Mustang Mach 1 with the Vienna plate W Jack 1 near the Brigance train station around 9.30 p.m. He reached out to the police in July of 1992 after seeing a picture of Jack's Mustang in the paper. And this is one of Jack the Jerkoff's biggest fuck-ups. Uh, killing a victim while driving a car with a fucking vanity license plate. That's a pretty big oversight. I don't remember coming across that one before in previous sucks, right? Making it real easy for witnesses to place you at the scene of a crime if you're driving a car with a license plate that says something like Rage Dad or Choke Him or anything other than just, you know, random letters and numbers on it. Definitely don't want to leave the scene of a sex crime with a license plate that says like Raper or Guilty, you know, Kill Him on it. Uh, Jack continued killing women in Austria of 1991. Most of the victims would be dumped in the woods outside of Vienna or Graz. All of the victims were picked up in red light districts, taken to remote locations, strangled with their own clothes, and dumped in forests. In every single one of these cases, Unterweger later proven to have been in the area when the crimes were committed. Actually, in all of the cases that he is linked to, he has proven to be uh, have been in the area where the crimes were committed. Uh, the women were typically strangled with their own bras in California uh, or pantyhose or other undergarments in Austria and the Czech Republic. Killer cut the shoulder straps and reconfigured the bra straps to create three ligatures and tied the nooses at maximum tension. So specific. According to the website, the crime wire, such constriction of the carotid arteries, which ultimately compressed the victim's neck by several inches, allowed the killer to methodically control the pace of strangulation and draw out the torture. So he did that because he clearly loved to watch them suffer. Jack was a suspect, but for a long time, there was just no solid evidence firmly linking him to the murders. It would later be speculated that Jack was periodically impotent and would kill sex workers out of anger over not being able to get an erection. Jack the Jerkoff, brother in limpness with OG time suck dirtbag Andre Chikatilo. What is big deal? It happened to many guys. Limp shame cock, nothing to cry about. Only something to stab or strangle about. Uh, sorry, don't, don't mind me. I'll be jerking in the corner. I bother no one. Don't worry about it if you didn't get that uh, reference. It will not affect the rest of the story. Uh, the New York Times gave a graphic description of how Jack killed his victims in 1998, writing, Unterweger's modus operandi was one of brute violence garnished with ritual. He would pick up a prostitute late at night, drive her uh, to an out-of-town spot, a wooded road or a parking lot. Consensual sex would follow, often involving restraint of some kind, handcuffs or ties. Then the mood would change. Bound and terrified, the victim will be forced to leave the car and walk into the darkness. Any resistance prompted violence. Several of the victims had puncture wounds to their buttocks caused by Unterweger's stiletto heels. Most had suffered blunt force trauma to the head and face. Death, when it finally came, was by strangulation. Each body was then partly buried, usually with a scattering of leaves or a fascia of branches. That asshole was kicking these women hard enough to punch holes with his heels into their asses. Such a fucking sadist. Uh, Jack was also working as a journalist for the public broadcaster ORF, O-R-F, 
Austria's equivalent to the BBC while he was doing this sick shit. ORF played, uh, or, you know, had played Jack's children's stories in the late seventies during his first stint in prison. And he later used their platform to talk about his early life in various interviews before he was released. And then they hired this twisted fuck when he got out. When news about the murders first came out, Jack covered the cases for ORF. He even produced a series of radio broadcasts and newspaper essays on the victims. I wonder how much he got off on that. How much did he enjoy fucking with society like that? Making himself feel smarter than everybody, a dark god amongst men by proving that not only could he keep getting away with murder, he could even investigate and write articles about his victims. Jack even wrote an article advocating for the safety of sex workers and criticized other reporters for their sensationalism. Jack also accused readers of, quote, greedy voyeurism and wrote that the hysteria prevented investigators from finding the real killer. He said, we should be glad that there was a red light district. The dead women in the Vienna woods are another argument for why society should do more to provide security for prostitutes. How much did he grin and laugh while he wrote uh, that shit there that he clearly didn't mean? I mean, I, I like it, but he didn't mean it. Uh, Jack even interviewed Vienna's police chief, wanting to know what information the police had about the murders, but the police chief wouldn't reveal much. The police disclosed the number of victims, the fact that they were strangled, but not the method of strangulation. January 5th, 1991, less than a week after Jack's previous murder, another body is found in the woods. 39-year-old Brunhilde Masser. Brunhilde had worked in the red light district of Graz for over 10 years before she was killed. She went missing on October 26, 1990, at 12.15 a.m., a taxi driver who knew Brunhilde stopped and asked why she was working late. Said she was hoping for one last customer. Fuck. Oh, she found one, but man, the worst one. She had plans to take her kids out the next day on National Celebration Day and uh, needed money for that. October 26th has been the date of Austria's National Day since 1965 or National Celebration Day. Ten years earlier, uh, the country declared its permanent neutrality, which then became one of the fundamental values of Austrian foreign policy. Uh, Brunhilde was found dead near the village of Grotkorn, near the Muir River. It's about five miles from Graz. Some kids playing in the woods found her body face down in the small brook, partially covered by tree branches. She was naked except for her jewelry, right? He never cared about the jewelry. Her clothing and purse, uh, they were gone. An animal had eaten part of her buttock. She also had a stab wound there. A forensic pathologist concluded that Brunhilde was probably strangled with a wide strip of fabric, but could not definitively identify her cause of death due to decomposition. When the inspectors from the uh, uh, Gendarmerie, Gendarmerie uh, defined as the law enforcement agency of the countryside, another tricky word for me, uh, by author John Leake, found out Brunhilde was picked up in the city. They started working with the Graz police. Investigators were initially suspicious of one of Brunhilde's regular customers, who was a prominent member of Graz society known amongst prostitutes for his kinky tastes. This man reportedly enjoyed bondage and liked to drive girls to the woods and masturbate while they danced naked in front of his car. However, no girls had ever made claims of assaults against them, and there was no evidence that he was connected to the murders. Before moving forward, uh, what a very specific sexual fetish. Dancing naked out in the woods in front of the car. I'm not going to lie. Uh, a naked dancing woman illuminated by headlights. I mean, that is pretty fucking sexy. Hello, Safina. Uh, not sure Lindsay would be real into that one, though. <laughs> not sure I could talk her to going out in the woods with me for that. Also, not sure I could finish to just that. I mean, maybe a fun warm-up act, but at some point, I think I would start to feel pretty silly. Just be like, okay, what are we doing? Can we, can we please just have sex? This is starting to weird me out. It feels more like a strange occult ritual than sex. I don't want to summon a skinwalker or something. What if you did find out, though, that jerking off to somebody dancing naked, lit up by headlights out in the woods, was a way to summon skinwalkers? <laughs> That'd be pretty cool. 
However, horny teenagers on dares would probably be summoning those motherfuckers left and right and forests around the world would be infested. Getting way off track now. Uh, March 7th, 1991, 35-year-old Elfrida Schrempf disappears from the sidewalk next to Volksgarden, a public park in Graz. A sex worker saw, uh, said he saw Elfrida at 10.15 p.m. that night get into a Volkswagen Golf that looked a lot like a police cru- cruiser. Investigators will end up speaking with about 1,000 Volkswagen Golf drivers, including patrol officers. Jerkoff Jack must have realized that the vanity plate wasn't such a great idea going forward. Because of the previous murders, the Graz police suspected that Elfrida or Elfrida had been killed. Uh, and then seven months later, on October 5th, 1991, their suspicions are proved correct Correct when the skeletal remains of Elfrida Shrimp are found in the woods 14 miles south of Graz. She was still wearing her jewelry again uh, and a pair of red socks. The rest of her clothing and bag were missing. She was found 400 yards from the nearest road, which indicated that her killer forced her to walk. But there were also signs that she may have been at least partially dragged. The forensic pathologist could not determine the cause of death due to decomposition. There were no signs of violence on her bones, which did leave strangulation as a, uh, you know, strong possibility. On April 4th, 1991, the Austrian authorities have their most experienced investigators focus on the murders now. Ernst Geiger, uh, a detective, was put in charge of the task force. He told a producer of the American docudrama FBI Files, a show that ran from 1998 to 2006, no lead was promising. All the leads ended nowhere. We had no real suspect. On May 31st, 1991, Inspector August Skinner called the Vienna headquarters and advised the homicide you know, squad there to look into Jack Unterweger as a possible suspect. But to the department, Skinner's tip was considered, quote, so implausible that it belonged far down the list. Uh, what? Why would officers in Vienna think that? Like, did they forget how he killed the woman he'd been convicted of murdering? I mean, I know it's real easy to play backseat driver with a lot of this stuff, but uh, were they just really fucking stupid? Like, how was he not the prime suspect? Still, Skinner was at least able to put Jack under surveillance. He had Geiger and a team start looking into Jack's background and learning about his childhood. Meanwhile, women keep disappearing and then turning up murdered. 23-year-old sex worker, Sylvia Zagler, last seen on her corner in the city of Vienna, April 8th, 1991. The corner she regularly worked was just 10 minutes from Jack's apartment at that time. Four months after she disappeared on August 4th, 1991, a couple walking in the woods near the village of Wolfsgraben, five miles from Vienna, found a body lying face down covered with a thin layer of soil and some tree branches. She was identified as the missing Sylvia Zagler by her earrings and dental work. Again, you know, jewelry isn't taken. Been strangled in the same manner as the other victims, at least in the manner determined when their bodies were not too decomposed to determine anything. Three weeks later, 33-year-old Regina Prem is last seen walking from a hotel to her street corner, April 28th. Most of the victims were not close with their families, didn't have a lot of people looking for them or appealing to the media for info following their disappearances or deaths, but Regina was an exception. Regina grew up in an orphanage and worked menial jobs, according to her husband, Rudolf Prem. About two years after she met Rudolf, she realized she could make a lot more money doing sex work than random labor jobs, and so that's what she did. Rudolph and Regina eventually had a son together, got married. Rudolph quit working as a plumber to stay home and take care of their child. Regina made enough money on her own to furnish their apartment and have a playroom built for their son. Rudolph later told an Austrian magazine she was an insanely good mother. She'd let herself be torn into pieces for the boy. That's a disturbing way to provide for her son. Aye, aye, aye. Felt fucking terrible for her. Uh, for a while, Regina struggled with an addiction to rehypnol sleeping pills and spent time in a, quote, nerve clinic. Seems like some kind of rehab center slash counseling facility. When she got out, she went back to sex work. She worked in the, quote, free zone of the red light district near the rail yard of the West Train Station in Vienna, away from the nightclubs. 
According to author John Leake, the neighborhood has long been low rent, the home of down and outers, such as art school reject Adolf Hitler. Nice. Throw a little shade there. Uh, Rudolph dropped Regina off for an appointment with a regular client at 9.45 p.m. on April 28th. Regina normally finished about 2 a.m., called Rudolph to pick her up, but she didn't call that night, so Rudolph drove to her corner. When he didn't see her, he picked up her colleague, Erica, and they drove to different dead-end streets where Regina was known to meet with customers. Then they went to a hotel where Regina would sometimes meet uh, high-paying clients. There, the porter said that they saw Sylvia that evening. He said she paid her bill and left at 11.30 p.m. A sausage vendor across the street also saw Regina leave the hotel alone at 11.30. More on what happened to her later. Uh, For now, let's move on to another victim. May 20th, 1991. A 62-year-old hiker walking through Scott's Woods, a part of the Vienna Woods, near the sign of the Cross Meadow, notices a smell. While looking down at the forest floor, he sees a body. The dead woman was naked except for a leotard around her shoulders. She was lying face down with her legs spread and her arms extended. She was badly decomposed and animals had eaten part of her body. Leek wrote about the crime scene. Her killer had arranged her corpse to cause outrage. He had planted her face in the dirt, spread her legs and situated her backside so that her anus and genitals would face upward, gaping toward the viewer. It was the ultimate obscene gesture, an expression of mocking hatred. Stocking was tied around her neck and autopsy confirmed that she had been strangled with her pantyhose. The killer made an elaborate noose Unterweger's signature, the knot had a slip component, like with the other victims, uh, that may have been used to tighten and loosen the pantyhose to prolong the victim's death. The woman again still had her jewelry on, her clothing and items from her purse were scattered in a large radius around her, but no forms of ID were found. The victim was identified as 25-year-old Sabine Moitzel. Based on decomposition, Sabine had been dead for about five weeks. Investigators thought that her killer picked her up, drove her directly to the woods. Sabine's husband reported her missing right the previous month. As we uh, heard, uh, Sabine was a bakery sales girl, occasionally worked as a, quote, secret prostitute, which meant she was not registered with the Office of Health, which was a legal requirement for sex workers in Vienna. Not even her husband knew she was doing sex work on the side. Sabine secretly uh, struggled with heroin addiction, and the money from her day job wasn't enough to pay for the drugs. Around 11 p.m. on April 16th, 1991, Sabine's friend Ilsa dropped her off at an intersection near the rail yard of the West Train Station in Vienna. Ilsa passed by 10 minutes later and Sabine was already gone. May 23rd, 1991, a woman was looking, uh, who was looking for food for her guinea pig, guinea pig my gosh, found the body of 25-year-old uh, Corinne Eriglu. She was placed face down and a tree branch was put across her head. The torn off fingertip of a surgical glove was found under her body. Corinne went missing from her corner on May 7th, near where Sabine was last seen. She was found 10 miles outside Vienna, deep in the woods, in a grove of spruce trees, 30 yards from the road. Her killer was thought to have walked her to her final location, not carried her. Corinne had blunt force trauma to her face, which indicated she was beaten. The killer used her leotard to make a similar ligature to what was found around Sabine's neck. The rest of Corinne's clothing was gone, but her jewelry again left behind. May 24th, 1991, journalist Peter Grolick reported in the Courier that Rudolph Prem, husband of the missing woman Regina Prem, claimed he saw the suspect in the killings, whom he referred to as the Phantom of Graz, one of uh, his many nicknames at this point. Uh, Viennese magazine published a report on the Phantom in their May edition with a composite sketch based on a witness who claimed to have seen a man leaving a victim's apartment. Rudolph made an appeal to the killer saying, I don't want to believe she's dead. Maybe she's been abducted and locked up somewhere. But if the lunatic has killed Regina, he should at least say where her body lies. My wife deserves a decent burial. How fucking sad. May 28th, homicide inspector from Vienna goes to Graz to see if there are parallels between the Vienna and Graz murders and concludes 
Nope, there are none. Uh, why would he conclude that? What the fuck was going on in the uh, Vienna Homicide Department? I mean, this was the first serial killer investigation for any of the Austrian law enforcement members. And, and I feel like a lot of their decisions reflect that. You know, just uh, young women, mostly sex workers, found dead in a woods around two cities, two-hour drive apart, country where murders almost never occur. Uh, jewelry left at scene, no obvious sign of sexual trauma, strangled with items of their own clothing, converted into exact same type of uh, noose and knot. Uh, yeah, I don't see a connection. Probably coincidence. Probably gosh darn coinkydinks. Uh, while the investigation in Austria is failing to make important connections, Jack makes their investigation even harder in the short run for them to solve their case by leaving the country. This will soon make it easier since new bodies stop showing up in his uh, very public absence. And now he will get, you know, U.S. law enforcement involved, including members of the FBI who have a lot of experience tracking down serial killers. Unterweger arrives in L.A. June 11th. He's hired by an Austrian magazine to, or had been hired, that's why he was sent there, by an Austrian magazine to write about crime in L.A. and the differences in the attitudes towards sex work in the U.S. and Europe. For fuck's sake, killing sex workers, also paying his bills by continually writing about and investigating sex work. Always sex work. With Jack the jerk off. Jack would write two articles about crime in L.A. While Jack was in Los Angeles, three sex workers are beaten and strangled to death with their bras and the knot used in the ligature, exact same knot used in the recent murders back in Austria. 20-year-old Shannon Exley was Jerkin Jack's first American victim. Found dead in L.A. June 20th, 1991. She'd run away from home at the age of 16 and been uh, doing sex work ever since. Damn. I do feel compelled to say, even though I'm in favor of legalizing vice, that doesn't mean I always think it's a good fucking idea. Like sex work to support a drug habit is so sad. I just want them to be less stigmatized so they can uh, more easily be protected and get help. Spend less time hiding in the shadows where their uh, inherently dangerous sex work is that much more dangerous. Shannon did sex, did sex work to support her crack addiction. Some of her clients were truckers who delivered to the uh, produce district off 7th Avenue in downtown LA. On June 19th, 1991, the day before her dead body was found, Shannon called her dad before she started work and told him she was, quote, trying to get her life in order. Witnesses last saw Shannon near 7th Street and Main Street. The next day, her body was found behind the Girl Scout Center on 7th and Thicket in Boyle Heights in a vacant lot behind the building surrounded by eucalyptus trees. She'd been strangled, as I mentioned, with her bra, which was left around her neck. She was found naked. Marks on her feet showed that she had been dragged. Medical technicians found DNA from the semen of seven different men in her body. The police had no suspects to compare these samples to. A few days after her murder, on June 24th, Jack visits the LAPD Parker Center to get permission to go on a ride-along. That's cool. List himself as a journalist for an Austrian police journal. I'm guessing he was curious if they would uh, talk about Shannon. Six days after his ride-along on June 30th, 33-year-old Irene Rodriguez is now found dead. Her body found besides a uh, truck dock also in Boyle Heights. A homeless man looking for firewood in the industrial zone along the LA River found her. She was lying on her back underneath a big rig trailer. Her bra was knotted around her neck. Most of her clothing was gone, but there was a sock t-shirt and hypodermic syringe found near her body. Irene had moved to L.A. just a few months earlier, having uh, uh, lived or after living in El Paso, Texas. She was living there with her common-law husband and four kids. Irene visited her parents in L.A. just before Mother's Day. Then instead of going back to Texas, like she had told them, she stayed in California and did sex work to buy drugs. And then just kept doing that as she spiraled further and further down into addiction. Irene's roommate last saw her at 8 p.m. on June 28th, leaving their apartment to go to work. When not murdering drug-addicted sex workers, Jack's having a grand old time in L.A. When he's not killing, he's uh, he's schmoozing, looking for a little showbiz. Uh, while in L.A., Jack had hoped to brush elbows with the rich and famous, like he did back in Austria. 
He really wanted to talk to famous writer Charles Bukowski. Uh, also tried to find Cher's home in Malibu so he could interview her. And then, uh, you know, did find uh, the general area, you know, through her neighborhood, but couldn't, couldn't get past the security gate to where she was living. Uh, crazy that the security team uh, wouldn't let a convicted murderer Recently released from an Austrian prison who now focuses only on covering sex workers as a journalist after being arrested for, in addition to a young woman's murder, violently assaulting at least one sex worker and trying to pressure a 16-year-old into going into sex work. And he was dating two teens he'd talked into sex work. Crazy that Cher's security team wouldn't let that motherfucker in to talk to her. Not that he introduced himself with all that. <laughs> That'd be pretty uh, ridiculous. I-, I want to see Cher, please. And you are? Uh, Jacqueline Duvega. D- does she know you? Uh, no, but uh, she has most quite certainly heard of me. I'm quite famous in Austria. Uh, famous for what? Uh, for rehabilitating myself after murdering a young girl, uh, beating the prostitute, making many girls I date, going to prostitution, uh, violent offenses against four other girls, uh, writing a lot of sex work, uh, articles in prison, focusing on sex work, uh, once released, yada yada. Get lost, motherfucker. The police have already been called. I don't know what accent that was. That was maybe German, maybe Russian. He, you know what? Sometimes Germans, they live close to Russians, and that's how they talk. Uh, Jack was convinced it was only a matter of time before he'd meet a big-time producer who's going to turn one of his stories into a huge movie, a fucking blockbuster, and then he'd be a Hollywood big shot. He truly thought that Hollywood's artistic elite were going to fall in love with him, just like Austria's artists had. But uh, nope, maybe in 1969, not in 1991. On July 3rd, 1991, Jack did meet with Austrian filmmaker and producer Robert Dornhelm, to pitch his autobiography to be turned into a movie. Uh, but Jack could tell pretty quick uh, he wasn't interested. Dornhelm actually directed a Lifetime movie about suck subject Amanda Knox in 2011. And he didn't give a shit about jerking Jack. The night after these two met, Jack killed again. Coincidence? Or rage over being casually rejected by a director whose most successful film did $700,000 in the box office revenue. Or in box office revenue. Uh, around the same time, Jack was getting dismissed 26-year-old Sherry Long who also went by the name Peggy Jean Booth, went to work on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood. Sherry came from Michigan, moved to LA in hopes of some excitement. She was working in elementary education, but wasn't making very much money. She eventually got involved with the quote, wrong crowd, started using drugs, which led to a downward slide. She was never seen alive again after July 3rd. Eight days later, July 11th, there was a solar eclipse visible in LA. The eclipse started at 10, 12 a.m. And by 1121, the moon covered 69% of the sun. That morning, some men and their children drove up Corral Road or yeah, Corral, I think it's Corral. Uh, cr- cr- oh my gosh. Corral or no, excuse me. Coral Canyon Road. There we go in Malibu to watch the eclipse. Uh, there's an old fire road that branches to the right of Coral Canyon Road and goes up a hill that would have been a perfect viewing spot. As they reached the top of the hill, they found Sherry's dead body. And again, I think it's Coral Canyon. I, uh, I can't remember if Coral is spelled with two R's or Corral is spared. Spelled that way. Excuse me. It's uh, it's C-O-R-R-A-L. If you're like, wait, what road is that? That might be Corral. Tyler, do you have any guesses? Do you think it's Corral or Coral? I think it's, I think Coral is with one R. Coral, Coral is with one R. I think so. And then Corral is two. I'll Google it. Okay. I like, you know what? Corral. It's kind of like a Western vibe a little bit in this area. Let's say it's a uh, Corral. R- Wikipedia says Coral is one R. Okay. All right. All right, Wikipedia. So we're right. So it's Corral. Correct. Okay. All right. According to Wikipedia. According. Thank you. I'm glad we were able to figure that out. Like it would have bugged my weird brain. As they reached the top of the hill, they found Sherry's dead body. She was on her back 20 yards west of the dirt road under a laurel sumac shrub. 
Uh, her shirt was pushed up, exposing her stomach and breasts. A bra was knotted around her neck. The pockets of her jeans turned out and she had no ID with her. She was identified by her fingerprints. Her cause of death was asphyxia due to or as a consequence of ligature strangulation. The LAPD handled the Boyle Heights cases. The LA County Sheriff's Department handled the Malibu case. The two agencies compared notes due to similarities in the murders. Criminalist Lynn Harold compared the knots in the three cases to see if there was a pattern. She later told the producers of FBI files, in order for the knots to be made, the wearing apparel had to be dismantled in some form. It's not like the bras were just taken and tied in a square knot, but they were, st- but they were stripped of the elastic always on the left side. And if three people randomly went out and strangled three people, it is extremely unlikely that all three of them would come up with this same scenario. Yeah, it's like very much a, a signature kind of knot. Uh, Jack left Los Angeles five days after Sherry's body was found on July 16th, 91. And no more women's bodies are going to turn up with the bras turned into that knot again during his absence. Before Jack had left for Los Angeles, the Viennese police had received a tip that Jack was the serial killer they had been looking for. He was placed under surveillance upon his return, but still not enough evidence to charge him. By the time he returned home, psychologist Tom Mueller from Austria's Criminal Investigation Division joined the investigation. Uh, And Mueller later told FBI files that it was hard to investigate Jack because he had so many friends in law enforcement and the media who just couldn't understand how he could be the bad guy. And what a bunch of fucking idiots. Of course he could be the bad guy. Right? He already was the bad guy. How did these fools forget all the shit he'd already done? To me, this is like uh, if suddenly whoever OJ Simpson was recently dating turns up stabbed to death along with her new lover. And OJ is in the area where these stabbings took place. And then detectives are asked to look into him. And they're like, what? Why? The juice? How could you think he could stab somebody? But this is even crazier because Jack would act, was actually convicted of killing a young woman and didn't deny that once sent to prison. Only, in fe- only a few investigators thought Jack could possibly be the suspect. Ernst Geiger and Mueller uh, were two of them. Uh, they now analyzed receipts and travel records, found that Jack was at each and every murder location at the appropriate times, but still couldn't convince their colleagues. Not right away. Mueller said at any, any time where Jack... Uh, hung out at a place, excuse me, anytime where Jack, oh, it is, yeah, the quote is hangout, which is weird. Anytime where Jack hung out at any place in Prague, in the western part of Austria, in the southern part of Austria, exactly in that time period, there was always a dead body somewhere in the woods. Mueller and Geiger continued looking into Jack. Geiger spoke with sex workers who told him that Jack was a regular client and that he always insisted that they wear handcuffs. One sex worker saw him approach her friend Heidi Hammerer, one of the victims, the night she disappeared. She remembered Jack was wearing a brown leather jacket. Based on this idea and the uh, hair fragments, uh, Geiger got a warrant to search Jack's apartment uh, when he wasn't home. The authorities found and took that brown leather jacket. They looked into his California travels, found receipts from a seafood restaurant in Malibu that matches the time when the victim found there disappeared. Investigators uh, you know, didn't find much else in the apartment, no evidence directly tying Jack to the murders. There still wasn't enough evidence for an arrest warrant, and now the investigation stalls. Geiger felt like he needed help. So he and other Austrian investigators go to the U.S. Embassy and meet with an FBI agent stationed in Vienna. She calls the criminal profiling unit in Quantico, speaks to Agent Greg McCrary. McCrary had had helped pioneer the science of profiling, and he agrees to look at the case to determine if one individual committed all these murders. Geiger informs the agent at the U.S. Embassy that Unterweger traveled to California in the summer of 91. She authorized a message to be sent over to California to inform local authorities. Over the next several days, Geiger and Mueller prepared to travel to speak to the FBI. Prosecutors in Austria, meanwhile, talked to the L.A. police through Interpol. Soon, Austrian investigators get an important call from L.A. detective Fred Miller, who told them that California experienced a few similar murders in the summer of 91. 
Detectives Fred Miller and Jim Harper are working those murders, and uh, they now know that they are eerily similar to a bunch of Austrian murders. Miller and Harper check airline, car rental, and hotel records to create a timeline of Jack movements, Jack's movements in L.A. and note that Jack visited LAPD headquarters, presented press credentials, signed up for a ride-along. Jack said he was writing a German magazine story comparing European and American sex work. He asked to see where the city's sex workers hung out. Officers showed him the, quote, seedier areas of L.A. Geiger and Mueller added this information to their case file, traveled to Quantico with information on the victims, and got there in August. Meanwhile, Jack continued publishing articles and speaking out uh, about uh, murders on in Austria on TV. He said the police couldn't find the real killer and had singled him out only because of his past. He spoke of being punished for crimes he'd already served time for. He was the victim now. He claimed the police had no evidence against him, wouldn't be able to send him back to prison because he didn't do it. Jack was still popular with the public, still had support from powerful and wealthy people who believed that he was being unfairly targeted. Meanwhile, at Quantico, Agent Greg McCarthy refuses to look at any information about Jack, uh, so nothing will interfere with his analysis before it's over. He focuses on looking for a criminal signature in each case. He notes that all the victims have restraint bruises on their arms and wrists, or had, and that no semen was found on most of the victims. Uh, To him, this suggested that the killer struck out of impotence and was terribly insecure about his masculinity. Right, Impotence makes me think about that steel rod he used on at least a few victims. McCreary told the FBI files that there was a clear pattern and a ritualistic behavior at each crime scene. Most of the victims were similar because they were sex workers. They were on the street when they were picked up. No one saw them get into a car. They were transported to where they were murdered, strangled with their own clothing, disposed of outdoors, and there was the absence of clear sexual assault. A week later, McCreary determined that there was one killer in all of these cases. The FBI and Austrian detectives spent another week uh, flushing out the profile. They felt that the killer had a good degree of mobility, was older, intelligent, sophisticated, and an organized offender. Uh, Tom Mueller believed that this described Jack Unterweger. He told FBI files, I would say Jack was a very, very, uh, was a very, very good for a typical type of organized offender. And I would say he was the typical example for a natural psychologist. He was able to understand the needs of other people. He was able to come close to other people, to listen to other people, and then to manipulate them. The murders occurred in Prague, Austria, and L.A., which went against the theory that most serial killers target people in a much more geographically limited zone. Agent McCrary compared Jack's timeline to the timeline of all the murders, and everything lined up perfectly. And that was his aha moment. Then the University of Bern called L.A. Austrian lab techs completed their fiber analysis of the clothing confiscated from Jack's apartment from that leather jacket. Fibers from the lining of the jacket matched those found on the body of Heidi Hammer, right? Finally, there was some strong forensic evidence linking Unterweger to one of the bodies. But investigators still held off on an arrest for the moment, right? Those fibers proved that he had been with Heidi, but Heidi was a known sex worker and Jack didn't try and hide the fact that he was still having sex with sex workers. The fibers didn't prove that he killed her. Uh, The FBI now decided to use VICAP, the Violent Criminal Apprehension Program, a computer database of solved and unsolved homicides. A programmer inputted the European and Los Angeles cases. McCrary ordered a search with 15 cross criteria to show if the victims or the, if the crimes were related. 48, 48 hours later, they had the results. The 11 murders were definitely statistically linked. Austrian authorities felt like they had the evidence they needed and returned to Vienna. On October 8th, 1991, at 11.45 p.m., Rudolf Prem, the husband of Regina, received a crank call. Ever since he spoke with the courier in May, he had been receiving occasional anonymous phone calls. He recognized the voice in the October 8th call. He thought it sounded like a man who had also called him back in July and said, at the Vienna Woods Lake, go left and follow the path that steeply ascends and forks. A few were lying there. 
when the figure eight at the zenith stands, then I'll tell you where your wife lies. This time the caller said, I am an executioner. On Tobinger Hill lies Gerda. God commanded me to do it. Tonight I have completed my work. To 11 I have carried out the just punishment. 5 a.m. the next mor- the next morning, same man calls back and says, they lie in the place of atonement, facing downward toward Hades, because otherwise it would have been an outrage. Is he doing this to taunt Rudolph or to make authorities think that a different killer killed Regina, make them question their investigation? Also, it's a fucking weird translation. Sound like a bunch of gibberish. Uh, two weeks later, on October 22nd, 1991, officers of the Criminal Investigation Bureau in Vienna officially questioned Jack about the Austrian murders. They hoped he would confess. Jack admits to consorting with prostitutes for writing and for sex, but denies knowing the victims. He has weak alibis, but investigators release him anyway for lack of evidence. Uh, Jack doesn't let being the focus of a serial killer task force uh, get in the way of him living his life at this point. On November 16th, 1991, the 41-year-old meets his soon-to-be girlfriend, 17-year-old Bianca Marac. Bianca was the daughter of an apartment-building caretaker. Mom named her after Mick Jagger's first wife. She liked to go to the Take 5, the in club at that time amongst uh, Vienna's wealthy. And on November 16th, Bianca saw an older man sitting a few stools down from her looking at her. After making eye contact with him, watched him speak to another woman, he uh, motioned for her to come over to him. She does. He introduced himself as Jack Unterweger. She had seen his name before. They talked for a while that night. Bianca didn't want to go back to Jack's place, told him she was meeting someone at the club next door. Jack said he would walk her over to the entrance and then he did and waited outside the club. When Bianca walked back out a few minutes later, Jack confronted her or confronted her about lying to him, but also gave her his number and left. And apparently Bianca was fascinated by all this. Uh, she later said she had no knowledge of the murder that he had committed in 1974 when she was only one year old. But she did recall that one of her teachers told her about a bunch of writers and artists who had advocated for Jack's release after he published his autobiography. Bianca knew her mom wouldn't approve of her being in contact with Jack, but Bianca was also, quote, tired of her mom nagging her for staying out late and going to clubs and didn't feel like she needed her mom's approval. Bianca called Jack two weeks later on November 29th. They met at the public library near his apartment, then went to a cafe, talked for a little bit. Then Jack showed her his apartment, told her he didn't need such a big place, that he was thinking about renting his spare bedroom, but, you know, Bianca, uh, you know, could have it if she wanted it. And she moves in. A few days after that, Bianca is sleeping in Jack's bed. By December 1st, uh, she's not paying rent. Soon after that, uh, she's uh, not having a lot of fun with Jerk and Jack. John Leake wrote, quickly she discovered that living with a well-known author wasn't as she had imagined. Jack didn't take her out with smart people, but cloistered her at home, controlling her life more than her mother ever had. The days followed a strict routine. Up at six, eat breakfast, drive to school with Jack, get picked up and brought home by Jack. No hanging out with friends after school. Her friends, he explained, have nothing in their heads. And then one day, Jack told Bianca he was experiencing a lull in his income and just, you know, casually suggested that she bring in some extra money by working for an escort service. So back to his old tricks. Still trying to pimp women out. Always sex work with this dude. Uh, Bianca met with a man to talk about the job, uh, learned that she would have to have sex with clients. Yeah, uh, what the fuck did she think she's going to have to do? Uh, She was furious, told Jack he was trying to make her work for a pimp. So Jack found her a job as a barmaid at a nightclub on the fringe of the red light district. Maybe uh, thinking he could ease her into sex work in a different way. Just before Christmas, Jack proposes to Bianca. Meanwhile, he's also seen at least one other girl, a girl named Elizabeth, an assistant at Success Magazine who he'd met at a party. On the afternoon of December 24th, after announcing his engagement to Bianca's family, he leaves to visit his other girlfriend uh, for an hour or so and bang it out. 
Fucking this guy. Never a dull moment with Jerk and Jack. Month and a half later, February 10th, 1992, Detective Geiger now submits a report to the Vienna DA listing the grounds for suspecting Jack Unterweger of seven murders in Vienna, Graz, and Bregenz. Uh, the DA concludes that there is still not enough evidence for his arrest. After the DA makes his decision, the Interior Ministry creates a special commission, though, to further investigate Jack. Investigators from Vienna, Lower Austria, Graz, and uh, for Albrecht agree to share info. Uh, Geiger was appointed as head of the commission and the first meeting is scheduled for February 14th. The night before that meeting on February 13th, the Graz police finally fucking issue an arrest warrant for Jack. The grounds for the warrant were Jack's false alibi for the night of March 7th, 1991, the night uh, Elfrieda Schrempf went missing. A teletype is sent to Vienna stating that the arrest will take place the next morning. When the Graz inspector arrives in Vienna, he learns that the surveillance team, though, has lost Jack in traffic. But not worried. They didn't think he'd go far. While they wait for him to turn up, that special commission holds their first meeting. And then Jack does not come back that evening. And they find out why. Investigators learn that the Friday evening distribution of one of the local papers had already gone out, with the front page headline being, Murder Series, an arrest warrant for Jack Unterweger. Some fuckhead journalist have been given the info on the condition that they did not run the story until the Saturday edition and then just runs it early. What an asshole, just putting the story before anyone's safety. Jack still didn't come back on February 15th, so now investigators search his apartment. They find a glass case in his living room that contains three pairs of handcuffs. In his closet, they find mace, a switchblade, and a 12-gauge shotgun, which he was not allowed to have as a convicted felon. Jack had fled to Switzerland with his girlfriend, Bianca, then traveled to Paris, New York, and Miami. According to the Washington Post, they fucking went to Miami basically because Bianca loved the show Miami Vice. So random. You would think he would take his decision... Like regarding where to hide uh, from investigators uh, who are looking at him as a serial killer a bit more seriously. No, just heads in Miami because that's where his teen girlfriend's favorite show was set. While on the run, Jack called Austrian media outlets to protest his innocence. He told an Austrian paper before he went into hiding, I'm not the woman killer they're looking for. I didn't kill those girls. I'd have to be dumb. While in Paris, Jack calls some Austrian TV shows to say that uh, him fleeing the country is not an admission of guilt. He promises to come back to Austria and answer any questions if his arrest warrant is withdrawn. In Vienna, investigators talk to Jack's friends. They say uh, he went on a holiday with Bianca in America. Detective Geiger speaks with Bianca's mother. She says that uh, she has been sending wire transfers to the couple. They were in New York, traveling to Florida. Geiger instructed her to let him know if Bianca called again. Days later, Bianca calls her mom from Miami, asking for more money, and her mom informs the Austrian police. I'm sure she was worried uh, about this motherfucker killing her daughter. Actually, I'm not sure of that, but I, I hope she was. February 27th, 1992, Jack Unterweger is arrested by fucking Sonny Crockett and Rico Tubbs, motherfucker. Hell yeah. Miami Vice, saving the day. Woo! That was a bit of the Miami Vice uh, theme song, if you're confused. Now, unfortunately, Don Johnson and Philip Michael Thomas do not arrest Jerk and Jack. Quick, super random uh, Philip Michael Thomas trivia, though. Did you know that years after Miami Vice uh, was canceled, in 1994, Thomas signed an agreement with Florida-based Psychic Readers Network to become the spokesman for what was called the Philip Michael Thomas International Psychic Network. (laughs) He appeared in uh, TV ads, infomercials, basically, claimed to uh, have met the planet's premier psychics through his world travels. And he was dressed like he was on Miami Vice. And then he was replaced by, can you guess? Fucking Miss Cleo. Tubbs was the original Miss Cleo. 
He then sued the owners for breach of contract and won over $2 million. And if you already knew that, I am surprised and impressed. Uh, Back to Jack. In reality, he is arrested by U.S. Marshals Miami. Austrian police were monitoring Jack's credit card, notified federal agents Miami. Jack and Bianca got there on Sunday, February 23rd. On the 26th, five U.S. Marshals set up surveillance on a house where they heard he was staying. Around noon the next day, Jack walked out of the house in a tank top and bathing suit. He appeared casual, but he kept checking behind him. And then he started to run. Jack was zipping down Collins Avenue in Miami Beach when he was arrested. By five federal agents. And he was booked on a fugitive warrant. Uh, Jack was also charged with immigration fraud for saying he was a tourist without a criminal record when he entered the U.S. Bianca was released after a bit of questioning. Uh, She told reporters that it was her idea to flee and that she chose Miami because, quote, and I'm not making this up, I like Don Johnson. Uh, Bianca later said in an interview after Jack was arrested, he couldn't have killed them. They weren't his type. Jack has such beautifully cared for hands. He could be very sweet with those hands. I can't imagine that he could have used those hands to kill someone. He fucking was already in prison for using those hands to kill someone. This episode has so many people doing so much dumb shit. What are you fucking talking about? I would normally say more, but you know, she was only 17. Uh, Bianca would later sell her story for a five-day serialization called Bianca's Exclusive Love Story, The Girl and the Murder Suspect. So that's cool. I'm glad she was financially rewarded for uh, terrible choices. Uh, On March 4th, 1992, Jack waives his extradition hearing. He tells U.S. Magistrate William Turnoff, Bill Turnoff, uh, that guy never got teased growing up, Mr. Turnoff, uh, tells Bill that he uh, has evidence showing he's innocent. Jack said that three weeks earlier, a sex worker told the police she saw him in a wooded area where another sex worker was found dead. But Jack claimed, I have 20 people who can testify that on that same night, I gave a lecture on my book. Uh, Hey, Jack, uh, you're wanted for many, many murders. Not sure proven uh, you maybe weren't at the scene of one of those is going to get you off the hook. March 12th, 1992, LAPD homicide investigator flies to Florida to ask Jack about the deaths that occurred during his time in LA. Detective Fred Miller was quoted by the LA Times as saying, we would like to question him concerning some cases. Our primary interest now is with one case, a murder, but there are other cases. In February, Jack was named the chief suspect in seven new murders and another murder in 1973 he was never charged for. The LAPD got a warrant for tissue samples. A technician in Miami obtained blood, hair samples, and saliva swabs from Jack, which were sent to LA for analysis. Jack's DNA perfectly matched the semen found in Shannon Exley's body, but she also had semen from six other men in her body, and there was no sexual discharge found with the other LA victims. Too bad they couldn't have tested for uh, metal rod insertion. Uh, Jack didn't want to go to Austria because he would be tried for all 11 murders, but LA detectives told him that if he stayed, they were certain he was going to be convicted in California and sentenced to death, and there would be no artistic support for a serial killer here in the States. Jack agreed to extradition where he would be tried for all the murders he committed. There would be no possibility of a death penalty, though. Uh, Austrian law allows citizens to be tried for crimes committed anywhere in the world, which I found interesting. The following month, more remains are found. April 19th, 1992, a retired police officer and his wife go for an afternoon walk on the uh, Hermannskugel, the highest hill in the Vienna woods. They spotted what they first thought was a dead branch leaning against a tree trunk. The officer kicked it. And when he did, he saw a piece of fabric attached to it. When he looks closer, he sees that it's not a branch. It's a human leg. It's a femur and a nylon stocking. Why am I not surprised that a former member of Austrian law enforcement confused a fucking tree branch with a human bone? 
They, they have not come across as master investigators in this episode. They have a hell of a uh, you know time connecting obvious similarities in homicide cases and also have a hard time telling the difference between wood and human remains, apparently. I don't know. Maybe if I saw this bone, I'd be like, you know what? I get it now. Or maybe it would obviously look like a fucking bone <laughs> inside some fabric. I don't know. I just have not been blown away by Vienna's law enforcement efforts in particular. Uh, the remains of victim Regina Prem had finally been found. Most of them. Her bones were strewn over a large area by animals. Investigators couldn't find her skull at first. Uh, they thought it was a potato for a few weeks and didn't even touch it. Her clothing was missing except for the nylon stocking. Uh, however, all her jewelry and a denture were found and that was enough to lead to her identification. Uh, <laughs> I made up the potato nonsense, by the way. Uh, they really could never find her skull. Uh, May 28th, 1992, Jack is extradited to Austria where he is charged with 11 murders, seven in Austria, one in Prague and three in LA. At the time of his extradition, the police begin looking for the car Jack drove at the time of Blanca Bokova's murder. They find Jack's BMW in a junkyard and recover some hairs, seven to be exact. These hair fragments are sent to the University of Bern for analysis. Lab techs extract a DNA sequence from the hair root and compare it to the victims, and the DNA matches Blanca Bokova. This is a huge breakthrough, but it still only proves Blanca was in the car when Jack owned it, not that he killed her. Uh, Jack's lawyer... Jans Jürgen Liehofer. Jans Jürgen. Jans Jürgen Liehofer. That's like the most fucking German name I've ever heard in my life. Uh, tells him, as reported by the Washington Post, if they can conduct the DNA test, then the devil's going to catch you. Uh, clearly, his lawyer thought he did it. Also, that's a weird way to say something. Then the devil's going to catch you. Austrians seem like a weird bunch. Uh, Jack replied, I'm not guilty. On August 30th, 1993, Jack is officially indicted for 11 murders, seven in Austria, one in the Czech Republic, and three in Los Angeles. Uh, excuse me, state prosecutor, Hamo Lambauer, admits that there were no witnesses, but says that Austrian authorities are convinced, uh, convinced of Jack Unterweger's guilt, according to the LA Times. He notes an amazing similarity of the way the murders were committed and Jack's proximity to all of the crimes. Another one of Jack's lawyers, uh, Jorg Zanger, said the indictment is obviously based on prejudicial reporting by the media. There are no new facts. While awaiting trial, Jack tells the press that he has been framed. And incredibly, this motherfucker still has popular support from the Austrian public. Jack's murder trial starts in Graz, April 20th, 1994. It's expected to take uh, two months, and it will. Uh, in June, uh, after two months of grisly testimony, Jack still has massive public support. The New York Times wrote, how did he get away with it for so long? Largely because he was a brilliant manipulator of people. An emotional chameleon, Unterweger sensed what a person needed to find in him and simulated it instantly. So powerful was this ability that while in prison, he may even have persuaded the parents of his first victim to finance his education. Women were especially susceptible to his gem and pitiable charm, and he maintained dozens of relationships simultaneously. When he was finally being tried for his crimes, 20 women sat together in the courthouse's public galleries, weeping. Mistresses, lovers, and admirers, all convinced of Unterweger's innocence. What the fuck? Guys like this always make me think, if only he would have applied his incredible talent in the right direction. Lord knows what uh, good Jerk and Jack could have accomplished. The prosecution only had two primary pieces of forensic evidence, fibers from the lining of the brown leather jacket that matched those found in the body of Heidi Hammerer and several hairs of another victim, Blanca Bokova, found in Jack's car. But that was it. Uh, and one of the women Heidi had been with several other men sexually shortly before she died. So this, yeah, not the strongest evidence. Um, there was also Jack semen found in Shannon Exley's dead body, but she had semen from six other men in her body as well. 
Uh, Shannon had been killed in the exact same signature way, though, as the other victims. DNA analyst Richard Dernhofer, had at least one dick in his suck, uh, said it was highly probable that Jack murdered all 11 sex workers based on how all the victims were strangled with their own clothing by someone tying the same signature knot. Uh, That knot tied all these murders together. Pun kind of intended, but honestly, pretty hard to avoid. uh, More than anything else. Uh, In addition to that little bit of forensic evidence, the prosecution also thankfully had a variety of witnesses. One eyewitness testified that they saw Jack's white Mustang with the license plate W Jack 1 near Heidi Hammer's street on the night of her murder. This hurt the defense's claim that Jack was not near her home at that time. Fucking vanity plate. Never drive or away from the scene of a crime you've committed with a vanity plate. Or please do. Actually, make it easier for people to catch you. Uh, Other women testified about Jack's violent behavior. One sex worker testified that she was handcuffed and told to pretend she was afraid. She said, I didn't have to pretend I was afraid because she was fucking terrified. Jack also never seemed to have a solid alibi for any of the murders. Uh, Next to the knot, combined with a bit of forensic evidence, uh, this really hurt him. He was in the area of all the murders when they occurred. Murders spread out geographically, and he didn't actually, uh, you know, have solid alibis for any of them. His lawyer, George Zanger, tried to discount this, telling the court, it's always a coincidence if one has an alibi. Such an intelligent man would certainly have taken care to have one if he needed it. That's a weird attempt at flipping the script. What? Uh, No, he doesn't have an alibi because he is innocent. Smart, guilty people are the ones to make sure to be somewhere else when their crimes are committed. Jack Smart, if he would have killed these women, he would have been somewhere else when he killed them. He would have killed them and also been at a different place at the same time. Only people who have good alibis kill other people. Uh, What was that? Uh, Come again? Austrian psychiatrist Dr. Uh, Reinhard Haller diagnosed Jack with narcissistic personality disorder. On June 20th, 1994, he presented his findings to the court. After spending two days interviewing Jack, he described him as profoundly profoundly sadistic. Finally, someone, um, you know, he doesn't seem to kill, seems to have met the real Jack. Not just sadistic, profoundly sadistic. And Nimrod agrees. FBI agent Greg McCrary testified all 11 murders were committed by the same person. Greg testified that the killer always chose either sex workers or people who did sex work for favors, said that the killer was criminally sophisticated, older, at least in his late 30s, not panicky or disorganized, had inner rage, but could control it. The victims had bruises on their wrists like they were uh, restrained with handcuffs. McCrary believed that Unterweger asked sex workers to wear them to fulfill a sexual fantasy, but he really wanted to wear them to control them. McCreary also noted that the victims followed Jack's travels and the L.A. murders were extremely similar to the Austrian murders. Unterweger tied his knots and ligatures in the exact same highly specific atypical way. Uh, The defense argued that the L.A. victims were strangled with their bras while the European victims were strangled with pantyhose. How do you explain that? Well, McCreary countered that European sex workers don't wear bras. Boom! Mic drop! Fuck yeah, bro! Uh, I picture him blushing after saying that, right? Uh, in my experience, sex workers in Europe, uh, they, they never wear bras, like like ever. Their sexy-ass erect nipples are always right there, waiting to be squeezed and sucked on, poking against their tank tops like they're about to just pop through and what have you, in my experience. I, I mean, from what I've heard from other guys who have experienced a lot of European sex workers, not from my own personal experience. Not from, That's not what I meant. I have a wife. I, I have a family. Please don't tell my family. Is my testimony going to be published back in the U.S.? I meant to ask that earlier. Uh, The prosecution summed up its argument against Jack June 27th, 1994. 
According to an article in The Guardian, state prosecutor Carl Gasser told the jury in his closing remarks, if Unterweger is acquitted, he will walk out of the court a free man. Uh, Seriously, The Guardian? That's the quote you chose to pick from the prosecution's closing arguments? Carl didn't say anything smarter than that. If you find him not guilty, just so you know how court works, he will walk out of this court a free man since he was since he was not convicted of crimes and stuff. So, you know, keep that in mind when you make your decision. If you if you acquit him, if you if he's not guilty, he's he gets to be free. Well, thank you, Captain Obvious. Seriously, what the fuck was going on with law enforcement and lawyers and just the judicial system in general back in Austria in the 90s? So many of them have consistently come across like total idiots in this episode. Maybe that's how Jack was able to manipulate so many people in Austria, right? Maybe for whatever reason, the entire nation of Austria in the early 90s was literally by far the dumbest place on earth. And they were all just blown away that Jack could uh, do more than make painfully obvious statements. Maybe he was only of average intelligence, but to the Austrian public, he was a fucking genius like Luke Wilson in Idiocracy. Uh, Jack would speak in his defense. Uh, He would also say some really weird shit. He said, I was a greedy, ravenous individual, hungry for life and determined to rise in life from the bottom. It wasn't me. I'm innocent. I had a hunger for life, a drive to conquer women. What? There must be a translation problem we're dealing with here with all these Austrian characters. In his defense, while on trial for multiple murders, he says, I was a greedy, ravenous individual, had a drive to conquer women. Hmm. Another source quotes Jack as saying, I was a rat, a primitive criminal who grunted rather than talked, an inveterate liar. The prosecutor is right. I consumed women rather than loved them. But I'm counting on my acquittal because I'm not the culprit. Your decision will affect not only me, but the real murderer because he's laughing up his sleeve. Okay. I see now that he was admitting to being a dirtbag with women, but not uh, being a killer. Okay. So maybe there's not a total translation problem. Uh, Laughing up his sleeve. I know that's a saying. But I don't think I've ever heard about somebody actually saying it before now. It's a weird one to me. Uh, Jack also added, I implore you, even if you are disgusted by Jack Unterweger's way of life, to think whether that's enough to say he doesn't deserve to live in freedom. He said about the hairs found in the car, I can't deal with this scientifically, not at all. I just don't get this DNA stuff. (laughs) My brain developed gene bumps when I was studying. What the fuck is happening? My brain developed gene bumps? (laughs) Now I'm back to thinking there has to be a translation problem. Feels like whoever was hired to translate German into English uh, didn't actually speak German very well. They were just guessing about what Jack said half the time. Uh, Yeah, uh, right here, uh, Jack said, um, women are marvelous fraggles. Hairy as the day is long. Pain is but a number and death is for the hot dogs. If you let me go home, I can build a beautiful castle out of Legos. And isn't that the quiet cat's meow? More ice cream and less strangling. Can we all agree that countertops and mittens are never part of the problem? Okay. Uh, on the afternoon of June 28th, 1994, someone planted a bomb in the courthouse. Thankfully, no one was injured. It never detonated. And final arguments were actually not delayed. Just some crazy fan probably of Jerk and Jack. So convinced of his innocence that they're willing to bomb the courthouse to try and somehow help him. June 28th, 1994, Jack Unterweger is found guilty of nine of the 11 murders he was charged with and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole this time. Uh, Two jurors actually did vote to acquit Jack. Fucking two out of eight of all the charges against him. But the other six only chose to acquit him in two cases. Under Austrian law, the jury does not thankfully have to make a unanimous decision in this instance, only a majority one. 
Jack was convicted of all the murders except for Elfrida Schrempf and Regina Prem because their bodies were too decomposed to establish a definite cause of death. Jack was sentenced to life in prison, again, without the possibility of parole. Very next day, June 29th, Jack is released, though, and let free. In less than 24 hours, he had convinced the Austrian president, Thomas Klestel, to pardon him and started dating and pimping out two of Thomas's granddaughters. God damn, he was good at talking people into making them make terrible decisions. No, in less than 24 hours, he was found dead in the cell. Uh, he'd hanged himself with a rope made out of shoelaces and a cord from his tracksuit pants. And that shitbag used the exact same signature knot on himself that he had used to kill his many victims. Right? He was 43 years old. During a routine check at 3 a.m., a guard had seen Jack lying on his cot, totally fine. Then when the guard came back around 40 minutes later, Jack was dead. On the day he was found guilty, Jack had told his lawyer he was going to end his life. Uh, in an interview, Jack's attorney, Hans Jürgen Liehofer, uh, told the uh, Washington Post, the jury said he was guilty, and I believe it was a fair trial. Maybe on the night he killed himself, he saw his victims coming at him. But now I've said too much. Clearly, his attorney knew he killed these women. Lehofer added, if, if Unterweger was guilty, he was a sick man. Do you understand? To kill without a reason must be sick. Many medical experts talked to him, and they all said he was not insane. But they also said he wouldn't commit suicide. His victims were not people he knew, not girlfriends or acquaintances. He killed strangers, women he'd known for only five minutes, prostitutes. If he killed him, I mean. Again, what is going on here in this case? Uh, thank you for that spellbinding analysis of who Jack was, Leehofer. Right, what was happening in Austria in the 90s? Why do so many of these people come across as just being painfully dumb in quotes? If Jack really killed the women that six juries think, let me say you something. Are you sitting on sit place? I blow minds. Jack killed more women after killed one woman many time ago than what? He's sick. I say it. He sick. S-Y-K. Uh, the evening before Jack's death, he announced his intention to appeal. Clearly, he didn't like his chances, but he announced that. Or maybe he did that for a different reason, right? Because because he said that under Austrian law, his guilty verdict was now not legally binding because the jury's verdict was not reviewed or confirmed by the court before he died. One last fuck you to Austria, maybe? A last fuck you to the families of his victims? Technically, legally, Jack will now forever not be guilty of their murders. And that is all for today's Time Suck Timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. Before I share a recap and some final thoughts, somebody else wants to do that first. Sonny Hollister here again, Meat Sex. Cheesecake Factory Store Detective. If any of you have a time machine, hit me up. I'd like to take it to Vienna, May 23rd, 1990. The day of Jack's release from his first prison stretch for murder. To keep him from killing again, it would have been simple. I go undercover as an Austrian literary agent and manager. Study a little Duolingo to learn the language. Maybe dress up like Will Ferrell's Mugato from Zuland. Drive a Ferrari with a vanity plate that says killer. I'm an eccentric artistic type in love with Jerk and Jack. He'll eat it up like it was our original classic Basque cheesecake. I act like it's my idea to have some fun with the ladies. Talk about tying them up. See what we can get away with. How it'll get Jack's literary juices flowing. And then, bang, bang, chicken and shrimp steal Ron to the head when he tries something funny. Back to prison he goes. Simple as that. Sometimes you have to trail these guys. Give them a little push in the direction you know they're headed in anyway. For the good of the general public. 
When they have his kind of record, you know where they're going. So why wait for them to get there? It's like this time at the Cheesecake Factory when I saw a guy who had stolen silverware from us not once, not twice, but thrice, walk back in. Did I remind him he was blacklisted and have him tossed? No, always better to make a bust. I had Danielle, our best server, real doll, give him some silverware made out of silver. Nice flatware we don't normally use. Stuff I marked before she put it on his table. Put some cheddar on that mousetrap and serve it to the rat. And then, bang, bang, chicken and shrimp. He hadn't pocketed that cutlery but two seconds before I had the cuffs surround his wrists and his face in some shepherd's pie. Until next time. You keep listening to True Crime, and I'll keep stopping it. Stay sunny, everyone. Fucking Sonny Hollister. What a law enforcement legend. Now for my thoughts. Uh, Johann Unterweger, a.k.a. Jack, was an Austrian serial killer who lived from 1950 to 1994. Like many serial killers, he had a troubled childhood. His father abandoned him before he was even born. Mom was arrested for fraud when he was a toddler. Jack was sent to live with an abusive grandfather and never lived with his mom again because of his abandonment issues. Being abandoned by a single mom who probably was a sex worker combined with who knows how much time spent exposed to other sex workers. He developed a hatred for sex workers. What I wonder in situations like this is why didn't he develop a hatred for dads who abandoned their kids? Why didn't he develop a hatred for uh, pieces of shit grandfathers who constantly talk shit about their daughters and abuse their grandkids? Speaking of grandpa, is he mostly responsible for who Jack became? Seems like he had the most influence over Jack during his developing years. If he would have been kinder, more respectful to women in general, would, have, would Jack have turned out the same? I doubt it. Raising your daughter's child doesn't automatically make you a hero. Might just make you an asshole who kind of sort of did the right thing, where the grandkid is concerned. Jack might have been much better off if his grandpa had let him go to an orphanage or somewhere else. Man, so much anger reserved, especially for mommy. So many mommy issues with so many of these serial killers. 1974, Jack definitely killed an 18-year-old German girl, Margaret Schaefer. He was convicted of her murder, sentenced to life in prison in 1976. She was probably, uh, you know, the, the second woman at least that he killed. Sure seems like he killed 25-year-old Marika Horvath in 1973. Even if Margaret was his first victim, he raped at least one woman before her murder, Daphne in Salzburg, uh, assaulted half a dozen or so other women. He committed many crimes against women before he went to prison in 1976. Sentenced to life with the possibility of parole after 15 years. While in prison, Jerk and Jack becomes a prolific writer. His works circle amongst uh, Austria's literary elite. Jack's writings inspire intellectuals. You know, they're seen as an example that even a cruel killer can be reformed through the proper education by being given time to reflect and the proper outlet for their talent. His autobiography became a bestseller in Austria, was even taught in some Austrian schools, becomes a a documentary film that does well. Many high-profile intellectuals push for Jack's early release from prison, but the president refuses to allow it. However, in 1990, Jack is released after serving the bare minimum 15 years. He becomes a minor celebrity upon release, works as a playwright and journalist, but he was not rehabilitated as his supporters believed. Just a few months after his release, he returns to murder, so much murder. In 1990 and 1991, he kills eight women in Austria and the Czech Republic. In Bregenz, uh, Graz, and Prague, he primarily targeted sex workers in the city's red light districts. Some of the women were found days later, some of them months later, found naked in wooded areas outside the cities. Most disturbingly, they'd been strangled, mainly with their own pantyhose. Some of them beaten before they died with puncture wounds in their bodies. And Jack got paid as a journalist to cover these same fucking crimes. Then when Jack traveled to Los Angeles for a journalism assignment, three more sex workers are murdered in the same manner, uh, strangled with their bras now. 
Then Jack returns to Austria, where soon Austrian authorities contact the FBI and the murders in L.A. and Europe are connected. Investigators work together to establish a timeline uh, that puts Jack at each of the murder locations. After an international police chase, Jack is arrested in Miami, Florida, right? Uh, 1992, Miami Vice. Goes to trial in June of 1994, was convicted of nine of the 11 murders, uh, new murders for him. And then less than 24 hours later, is found dead in his cell, right? He'd, he'd uh, hanged himself. He tied the noose around his neck with the same signature knot he had used to kill his victims. Those last 11 victims, their deaths were so entirely avoidable. Sometimes a tiger really does not change his stripes, right? Everything I have ever listened to or read when it comes to men who commit violent sexual crimes against women, when they have committed crime after crime for years, when they've beaten women, raped women, killed women, pressured women into sex work over and over, they don't fucking change. Not everyone deserves a second chance. And Jack's release after serving his 15 years in prison wasn't even his second chance. Between 1966 and 1976, he was convicted of committing over 20 crimes, many of them violent crimes against women. A guy like that, two choices and two choices only in my mind. Lock them away forever with zero chance of them ever walking free again or death. Anything else I think is irresponsible. Not all crimes deserve forgiveness. Let's head to today's takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, Jack Unterweger hated sex workers. Possibly because his mother, who was described as a sex worker in some sources, abandoned him as a child. Jack did say that he saw his mother's face reflected in his first victim, maybe his first victim, and felt rage as he killed her. Number two, Jack Unterweger grew up illiterate, probably, but after he was sentenced to life in prison in 1976, he learned to read and write. Jack used writing to now express his dark thoughts, writing letters about suicide and love poems to death, as well as an autobiography describing his troubled childhood. He also wrote plays and children's stories that circulated throughout Austria. Austria's literary circles were fascinated by Jack's writings. He claimed that he had changed as a person in prison and was now totally reformed. Many writers and intellectuals believed him and pushed for his early release. They convinced politicians to do the same. And although they were unsuccessful regarding getting him a pardon, he was released in 1990 thanks to these efforts after serving the bare minimum of 15 years and becomes a celebrity. Also becomes a journalist paid to cover the murders he is committing. Number three, Jack Unterweger was Austria's first modern serial killer. He killed his victims by strangling them with their own clothing, either with their stockings, pantyhose, or bras. He fashioned a tight noose-like knot that could be tightened and loosened, which allowed him to torture his victims until they died. He often left the ligature around his victim's neck, uh, you know, likely to taunt investigators, and he also posed his victims' naked bodies in wooded locations. Number four, unlike many serial killers, Jack did not stick to one general area. He didn't just cross state lines, he crossed the Atlantic, killed women across the ocean in Los Angeles. Jack killed three sex workers while he was on a journalism assignment in the States. These victims were strangled in the same manner as the Austrian and Czech victims. Luckily, because of Austrian laws, Jack was able to be prosecuted and convicted for all the murders he committed, not just the ones inside Austrian borders. Number five, new info. While he was in Los Angeles, Jack stayed at the infamous Cecil Hotel. I just talked about this on Scared to Death. Episode 197, you see him too. Jack likely uh, chose the Cecil because it was popular with sex workers and because the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez, also stayed there during his reign of terror before he was caught after committing over a dozen murders between June of 1994 and August of 1985. We covered the Night Stalker in bonus episode 19 back in 2018. Jack interviewed sex workers in the city, canvassed the neighborhood around the Cecil, invited sex workers back to his hotel room. Author John Leake wrote about the Cecil, saying... The hotel embodied a motif that ran through all Jack's magazine articles about L.A. 
the existence of extreme destitution in the heart of a city known for its wealth. The Cecil was a popular location for sex workers who worked in the five-block radius on 6th Street between San Pedro and Central. According to author and Los Angeles uh, true crime tour guide Kim Cooper's statements in The Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel docuseries, the Cecil is a place where serial killers let their hair down. Uh, Richard, another Richard, second dick, uh, Shave or Shav, I don't know, it's an unusual spelling, husband of Kim Cooper and a Hollywood tour guide said, we believe Jack was living at the Cecil in homage to Ramirez. The Cecil Hotel has been called America's Hotel Death. First opened in 1924, entrepreneur William Banks Hanner poured around a million dollars, over 13 million in today's dollars, into building a, luxur- a luxurious new hotel in LA with an opulent marble lobby, stained glass windows, and alabaster statues. It was designed as a 14-floor, 700-room hotel on Main Street between 6th and 7th Streets. After the Great Depression, the hotel changed. The Cecil now offered low-cost rooms for short- and long-term guests. Tenants stayed in single rooms and shared bathrooms. The cost, combined with the location near Skid Row, led to the Cecil being a popular location for sex workers, people who didn't have much money, and criminals. It was a place of despair. At least four suicides occurred there between 1931 and 1938. No one knows what the full total is now. At least eight guests have fallen to their deaths from windows while at the Cecil. Some of them suicides, some of them accidental. So hopefully, supposedly, according to PBS affiliate KCET, several long-term residents started calling the Cecil the suicide in the 1960s. In 1944, a 19-year-old mother named Dorothy Jean Purcell had her baby in a bathroom at the Cecil, then threw the baby out a window. She claimed she didn't know she was pregnant and thought her child was stillborn, but a coroner found that the baby was alive and she was found not guilty by reason of insanity. The Black Dahlia, or Elizabeth Short, reportedly visited the Cecil uh, Hotel in the days before her murder, going to the lobby bar. In 2007, the property was sold to Fred Cordova. Cordova wanted to revamp the hotel, and Stay on Main opened in 2011. Stay on Main was a hostel within the hotel. The Cecil was divided uh, for different purposes, floors two and three, dedicated to long-term, low-income tenants, floors four, five, and six, dedicated to Stay on Main, and the rest of the floors made up the Cecil Hotel. Stay on Main had a separate entrance, but still shared elevators with the rest of the building. 21-year-old Elisa Lamb checked into the hotel part of the building January 26, 2013. Uh, we talked about that way back in episode 29. On January 31st, she was reported missing when her parents didn't hear from her, and she never checked out of the hotel. The police looked at her personal items, reviewed security footage. The hotel didn't have security cameras on every floor, including the floor Elisa was staying on, but the police found video of Elisa in the elevator. This now famous video shows Elisa behaving very strangely. She clicked almost all the buttons on the panel, acted like she was hiding or talking with people that either were off camera or not there. Elisa eventually walked away from the elevator and she was not seen leaving the hotel. The footage was released to the public, which led to various conspiracy theories, including some uh, that the uh, about the hotel being haunted. Elisa was eventually found inside the hotel's water tank February of 2013, and her death was ruled an accidental drowning. There was no trauma to her body. She had no drugs in her system. No foul play was suspected. However, many people believe her death was suspicious. They want to know how did she get to the roof without anyone noticing her? How did she, uh, you know, get into the closed water tank? The police believe she climbed up fire escapes to get to the roof. 2017, the Cecil was declared a historic cultural monument or landmark by the LA City Council. It closed later that year. There were plans to turn it into a luxury hotel, but those fell through. Simon Barron collaborated with the Skid Row Housing Trust to then turn the hotel into affordable housing, and the Cecil Hotel Apartments opened up on December 14, 2021. The units range between 160 and 175 square feet with common kitchens and bathrooms. Let's hope no one's staying there. Uh, you know, is somebody like Richard Ramirez 
or Jack Unterweger. Time suck. Top five takeaways. The redemption experiment of serial killer Jack Unterweger has been sucked. Some people, man, just can't be saved. Thank you to the Bad Magic Productions team for their help again in making Time Suck. Starting with the queen of bad magic, my partner in crime, Lindsay Cummins. Uh, thanks to the art warlock, Logan Keats, for producing, directing today. I'm, so, I'm sorry. Uh, Tyler C. It goes back and forth. Offended. <laughs> I'm out of here. <laughs> uh, yeah, thanks, Tyler, for uh, producing, directing today and helping me pronounce uh, or figuring out which uh, word was coral and which word was corral. And uh, thanks to uh, the Art Warlock for helping with production. Thanks to Bitelixir for upkeep on the Time Suck app. Art Warlock, uh, Logan Keith for creating the merch at badmagicmerch.com and helping run our socials along with Tyler, the Suck Ranger, and a team managed by social media strategist Ryan Handelsman. Thanks to producer Olivia Lee again for the initial research this week. And thanks to the All-Seen Eyes moderating the Cult of the Curious private Facebook page, the Mod Squad, making sure Discord keeps running smooth, and everyone on the growing Time Suck subreddit uh, and Bad Magic subreddit. Next week on Time Suck, we're going to get witchy. Hail Lucifina. Uh, we've sucked on many people or things who could be called witches or places where witches supposedly congregate for a variety of reasons, right? The Night Witches, Elizabeth Bathory, a.k.a. the Blood Countess, the Church of Satan, Russia's Granny Ripper, and more. We even covered the Spanish Inquisition, which would be part of Christian Europe's power play in ridding the world of evil influences, a.k.a. anyone who didn't conform exactly to how the church said you should practice religion but we've never sucked witches from the source. And what's that source? What makes a witch a witch? Well, I guess that would be witchcraft. According to the dictionary, witchcraft is the practice of magic, especially for evil purposes, the use of spells. But it's also so much more than that. Uh, Witchcraft is how, for so many centuries, people explained the unexplainable. Sudden storms that came to ruin their crops, the sudden demise of their animals, blights of hail or drought, illness, death, or even just people in your community that you didn't like that much. We meet sacks always looking for someone or something to blame. Uh, well, many of us now feel witchcraft is a you know, big no-no, thanks to Western culture inheriting a lot of the uh, Roman Empire and beliefs from uh, Christianity. It's actually such more, so much more complicated. And spoiler alert, a lot less evil than the culturally dominant narrative would have you believe. For centuries, people lived alongside so-called witches and other magic practitioners. I mean, supposedly magic practitioners, hiring them to do mundane stuff like find expensive objects that went missing, put love spells on people or protect them from unseen forces. Some of these practitioners even had a special role interceding on behalf of humans with uh, supernatural forces, keeping communities safe and in harmony, or at least leading communities to think they were being kept safe because of witchcraft. Even when Christianity rose up and tried to conquer all the other alternative ways to commune with the unseen, many of these old practices survived, adapting to live alongside Christianity and sometimes actually helping people heal themselves and understand the natural world. But there's also a dark history, a history rife with accusations, torture, witch trials, executions, so many executions, a history of institutions using charges of witchcraft to shore up their own power uh, and other anyone who stood in their way. So witchcraft next week on Time Suck. Right now, let's head on over to this week's Time Sucker Updates. Updates? Get your Time Sucker Updates. Uh, first up, a message from an anonymous sack with connections to the pizza bombing episode. A bunch of them. Uh, they write, Dear Dan, a.k.a. Suckwise Gamgee. <laughs> I started listening to uh, Time Suck. Nice uh, Lord of the Rings reference. I uh, started listening to Time Suck after you went on the pod or the Pat McAvee show back in 2016 or 2017. I can't remember which. I can't either. But when I first heard about Time Suck, I was surprised you hadn't done an episode on the pizza bomber. 
Well, after five years, you finally fucking did it about time. Anyway, I wanted to share a few personal connections with the Pizza Bomber case. I was born and raised in Erie, and while I've since moved away, it'll always be home. Both my dad and grandpa are doctors who had an office in the Lower East Side of Erie that my grandpa started when that area was overrun with the most grotesque and unwashed Polish animals known to man. JK, my family is extremely proud of our Polish heritage. I can almost read a full Dr. Seuss book without help. And wouldn't you know it, both Marjorie Deal and Ken Barnes lived within 100 yards of their office. And my grandpa was Ken Barnes' doctor up until he went to prison. And my dad had a few consultations with some of the other conspirators as well. My dad also works at the hospital where Bill Rostein died. Did my dad actually kill him? Hashtag dad watch. I remember visiting my dad at the hospital the day of the robbery and hearing the bomb go off up the road. Nobody had any idea what happened until we saw the news. Sadly, I think most people relish the fact that Erie was a headline, uh, was headline news throughout the country. I also went to Gannon University and took a class with Jerry Clark, who was not shy to discuss the case. And I took karate lessons two doors down from Mama Mia's. By the way, it was Junior's last laugh, not JR's. Thanks for all you do and keep up the great work. Your loyal sucker, Anonymous. P.S. Why didn't you say, or why didn't, yeah, why didn't you say just a little crack? Uh, anonymous sucker. Yeah, that's right. Junior's last laugh was a club ran by those fucking weirdos. I love how connected to this case you were. Uh, how crazy for you to uh, then get all the details to that story. Stories like the death of Brian Wells can sound so unreal. And hearing connections like these, it, it makes them feel more real to me. I mean, I know it all happened before you sent this message, but it's still nice to have messages, you know, just really cement that. I hope no more of your dad's patients go off the fucking rails like some of those goons. Now some interesting kidney-related thoughts from smart sucker Justin Miller who writes, Hey Dan, long time sucker here and I wanted to weigh in on your COVID vaccine comments after the Pizza Bomber episode. While I'm with you 100% in regards to personal freedoms and government mandates, it must be said that people always had a choice not to get vaccinated, but get regular testing and quarantine when infected. And while drug manufacturers always have had a dubious business model by profiting from medicine and are guilty of pushing the opioid crisis for monetary gain, no one ever claimed that the opioids didn't work or were fake. In fact, it worked all too well. I think the anti-vaccine crowd is getting too much of a pass on these points, which really weaken their argument and comparing the issue to abortion, or as I see, excuse me, personal privacy and bodily autonomy is apples and oranges. Uh, also, the government dictating abortion access, so he, he, sent in, uh, he sent in two e messages, and I kind of combined them. Uh, also, the government dictating abortion access to its citizens or actually personal privacy and bodily autonomy, as I see it, is absolutely overreaching. For example, if I had a child years ago that I was completely unaware of and never met, had no relationship at all with, and that child needed a kidney or they would die, would it be okay for the government to force me to donate because the kid's right to life is more important than my right to autonomy? Donating a kidney is way easier than pregnancy these days. And even if that is the right thing to do, I don't believe the government should have that power. Where does the slope lead? As for the people that want to protect the unborn, if the fetus has a chance of survival outside the mother, then yes, the state should step in. Otherwise, the fetus is still part of the woman's body, not a separate person. This is called viability. And from purely a legal standpoint is the only compromise that makes sense. Three out of five, love the show. Well, I love your thoughts, Justin. I'm not going to even try and add any of mine. You just uh, raised points I hadn't thought of with your kidney analogy and with your uh, the vaccine thoughts. Curious how other listeners will reply to them. I like to learn as much as all of you do. And uh, while I do like to share opinions, obviously, I just don't have a well thought out one today on this. So I'll save myself some trouble. I'll, uh, I'll keep my mouth shut <laughs> since uh, rather than just fucking talk on my ass. And, and finally, Meat Sack champion Melanie McGinnis shares some fucking real life with us. Melanie is a survivor. 
And she writes, hello, asshole. <laughs> I like it. I want to thank you for becoming my most fucked up addiction. I've been Cummins Laws so many times now I've lost count. This is the correct method for how to lose friends and negatively influence people. I, <laughs> I, recently, I recently got my air conditioner fixed on my old faithful 99 Suburban. And my first thought was, thank fuck, I can roll my windows up now and listen to Time Suck without fear. When I first started listening, my daughter was 16 and I carefully avoided letting her hear it. Then she turned 17 and was soon diagnosed with cancer. And I guess I just said, fuck it one day. And she heard some shit and started dying laughing. In the last six months, we've been traveling back and forth to Atlanta to the Children's Hospital, which is four hours from where we live in Southern Georgia. Time Suck has managed to keep us entertained and actually talking, not too much, I have to catch the details, and laughing through countless hours of riding and some really miserable days. I've suffered some of the most uncomfortable moments a mother and daughter can have while you go off on some rant about nasty, about nasty sex shit, but in the long run, it's made her talk to me more openly. She's about to start radiation, and I wondered if you'd ever thought about doing a suck about the cancer industry versus natural claims of things like not eating sugar being the way to cure it. I know you have a list to get through, but I would be very interested to see what you come up with. I also want to tell you how amazing it is that you helped so many people. I lost my business right at the beginning of the pandemic due to health problems. At the same time, my mom was diagnosed with cancer. She, fuck, she died in March of 2021. Three months later, I started dating the best man I've ever known. Three months later, he was killed in a motorcycle accident. I'm not sure I can explain what a fucking terrible year 2021 was and then came 2022 when my daughter got sick. My father has nothing to do with us, so I've been fighting since 2020 to provide for us, or her father, excuse me, has nothing to do with, to provide for us in the most basic ways. I don't know if there's anything you can do to help, but I've heard similar stories on here and I'm too embarrassed to start my own GoFundMe or some shit. I thought I couldn't hurt to ask. My kid needs things. She needs a bed, shoes. I need things. I need to be able to pay off my bankruptcy. And I'm only able to do the most minimal work because of her appointments and my own health problems. I'm trying so hard, but I need the smallest wins. As soon as I picked up my truck from the shop, my 03 Chevy truck that my daughter uh, drives broke down, literally leaving the mechanic, uh, mechanics, you know, shop. It's just shit like that every damn day. If there's anything you can think the Time Suck Universe can do to help, I guess I'll actually start begging. But I do understand that you can't help everyone. And if you, uh, all you can do is keep pumping out content that humiliates me and makes my kid laugh, that'll do, pig. <laughs> uh, thank you for being you and being a bright spot in the world. We love you. Sorry for the longest email ever. Fucking Melanie. You know, Melanie, you should create a GoFundMe. Camp. If anyone fucking has ever needed one, it is you in this situation. Uh, I would feel no shame, right? I mean, I get it. I get it. You know, and, and, I, and I like that you have that thought. You're clearly not somebody who lightly asks for help, but goddamn, if you know, this is the place to do it, this is the time to do it. Uh, start one. If you do start one, you can then post the link in our Facebook groups, right? We always let people post it uh, once. We don't let people post it more than once because we did that for a while and it was kind of flooding the groups and causing people to leave. Uh, there's a bunch of independently ran groups that are time, time suck adjacent. I suggest posting it in all of them. If they, if they allow that, uh, you know, we don't mention this a lot on messages here only because we don't want to be seen as playing favorites when we inevitably can't promote everybody's, you know, situation, even most of them. Uh, it's been a while since I personally mentioned our policy though. So here we are and man, what a message. And, and throughout all this fucking good on you for keeping your head up while going through so much shit. My God, the last couple of years have been kicking you in the pussy over and over again. But the, but the way you write, you can tell those kicks have not even come close to broken you. Maybe they've made you stronger. Uh, you inspire me with messages like that to be stronger. I, I sincerely hope you get the help you need more sooner than later and that Nimrod calms the fuck down, takes it easier on you in the years ahead. So please, yes, yeah, start that GoFundMe. Start fucking anything you can. And you know, if there's other companies that do similar things, start them all. 
right? Uh, hug that awesome daughter of yours tight. Uh, I hope I provide uh, many awkward moments for both of you ahead. Fucking, I, w- I would say keep on fighting, but I don't think anybody needs to tell you that. And I'll definitely add your topic suggestion to the list of possibilities. I have looked into that on the secret sock here and there. Absolutely, these uh, most of these bogus, you know, con artist claims that get people in trouble when they pursue them instead of pursuing proper treatment for cancer. It's fucking scary. But then also the uh, cancer industry with Big Pharma, also scary. I hope your daughter is recovering well. I hope she has the best oncologist and they're just fucking kicking ass. So much still to explore. Um, man, topic-wise, besides dirtbacks like uh, like uh, Jerk and Jack. And I don't, even, I don't even know what else to say, but you're fucking awesome. Clearly, your daughter's awesome. Love you both. Uh, go post that. Start it now. Start that fund. And uh, thanks for the message, everybody. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. Well, thank you for listening to another Bad Magic Productions podcast, Scared to Death, Time Suck Each Week, Secret Suck Each Week for the Space Lizards. Uh, please don't kill someone this week. Then go to prison for a long time. Then become a good writer. Then trick people into lobbying to get you released. Then kill more people when you get out of prison. Just maybe, I don't know, think about doing shit like that, I guess, if you must, while you stay somewhere where other people are safe and just continue to keep on sucking. Bad Magic Productions. I forgot to mention until the episode was already fully recorded, uh, and I'm bummed. Probably should have tried to go back and splice this in, but Jack in the Box, the restaurant Jack in the Box, uh, actually uh, named after uh, Jack Unterweger. Apparently, the, the fucking owner of Jack in the Box is. Uh, like a big fan, one of the people that wanted him to get it out, you know, just refused to fucking back down. Uh, still is a huge fan, I guess. And, uh, you know, just fucking just loves him. And uh, that guy with like the the big fucking head that shows up in the Jack in the Box commercials, if you like really compare that face to Jack Unterweger, it's a lot of similarities. Uh, Unterweger would wear that little pointy hat inside of his head uh, throughout his crime spree. And uh, just think it's fucked up. But, you know, they do have, they have pretty good French fries and, uh, that's not true.